I'm Alec Lace. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Welcome, everybody, to a special edition of First Class Fatherhood. I am happy, as always, to be here with you. Thank you for stopping by. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please get over there and bang that subscribe button. You do not want to miss all the action coming your way right here on First Class Fatherhood. Okay, dads, in honor of a very special event going down this weekend, December 1st and 2nd in Miami, Florida, called the Conclave of Warriors, I have put together a special edition here, which includes all seven of the dynamic speakers who are headlining the event. I have had the honor of interviewing all of these successful men right here on First Class Fatherhood, and this weekend, I will have the privilege of meeting these men at the Conclave because yours truly will be in attendance, and I cannot wait for what is sure to be a very big learning opportunity for me. If you are attending or plan on attending, please shoot me a DM. I would love to hear from you, maybe hook up with you down there. For information on tickets, please visit conclaveofwarriors.com. Or on Instagram, you can visit at Conclave of Warriors or at Man of War. I will include all the links in the description of this podcast episode if you are interested. So please enjoy my interviews with the seven horsemen of the Conclave of Warriors as they give us some valuable advice and share their fatherhood experiences with us. In this collection, you will be hearing from the event organizer and undercover narcotics legend, Rafa Conde, former Navy SEAL Jason Redman, entrepreneur Bedros Koulian, former Navy SEAL Ray Cash Care, entrepreneur Brad Lee, former Navy SEAL Brent Gleason, Hell's Angels undercover ATF agent Jay Dobbins. So please enjoy this collection and share it with any father that's in your circle. I'm Alec Lace, and you are listening to First Class Fatherhood. Welcome back to First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now is a first class father, a former police narcotics officer, a close quarters combat instructor, and host of the Man of War podcast. It is my privilege to say, Rafa Conde, welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Hey, man, great to be here. Definitely an honor, man. This is a topic that does not get talked about very often, but I'm excited. All right, let's get this started here. How many kids do you have and how old are they? Well, I have uh, my oldest one is uh, 20. Then I have an uh, 18-year-old. Uh, I have a 12-year-old. And then I also have a oh, <laughs> a uh, 5-year-old uh, daughter. So I have three boys and uh, one daughter. Wow, okay. I'm right there with you. I had three boys, and then I got my little princess on the fourth try as well. Yeah, man, that's... Uh... Yeah, definitely a blessing, no doubt. You're a bit ahead of me here, so I can definitely stand to learn something. Uh, what kind of sports or activities are the kids involved with? Uh, my kids, uh, let's see, uh, two of them played uh, football and some basketball, and uh, martial arts has always been big in our family. I run a martial arts school for many years and uh, been training there for 33 years, and i got to tell you that all my kids, with the exception of one, um, have started martial arts, and they've been training for a very long time. All right, please tell my listeners a little bit about your background here and walk me through how becoming a dad changed your performance on the job with all the dangers that you were involved with. Um, most of my career, I have been work, uh, worked uh, undercover narcotics, okay? So it was a pretty dangerous position to be in. Um, as a father, one of the most important aspects, especially when you're out there on the street doing these things, is you know, stepping up to the plate and doing things the right way and keeping safety in mind because 
you know, you have kids, you have people, you know, you have kids that rely on you, you have kids that, you know, look up to you. And for me as a parent, I mean, that was like so crucial, right? Because, you know, I'm going home to somebody. So my outlook in life had to be switching my hat when I'm out there on the street, right? I'm different than when I am with my kids. I got to be able to walk into that house, decompress, take my hat off, and really start being a parent. So that was one of the biggest, uh, to answer your question, that was a huge, uh, um, you know, kind of turn of events for me, learning how to, you know, take my hat off when I walked in through the door. Yes, that's definitely something I struggled with myself, as I think all new dads do, uh, switching from that workplace self to their family self. Obviously, a lot more difficult when your life is on the line every day. Uh, Okay, you've dealt with narcotics for such a long time, so I'd love to get your opinion on marijuana. Uh, There's a lot of places now where it's been legalized. Uh, How do you feel about weed and especially the effect or influence it's having on our kids? Well, as far as uh, marijuana goes, uh, I, I've always thought that it's a gateway drug. A lot of people don't believe that, uh, but I'll tell you that coming from my experience out there, marijuana is the starting point with, dr- uh, with escalation of drugs, especially in our society now. Um, as far as legalizing marijuana, I don't, I'm, I'm not agreeing with it. However, on the flip side to that, it's going to cut a lot of drug dealers out of the loop, which would be a positive thing. Um, I am a big believer still that in this country, as far as uh, children go, um, they should have absolutely, drug abuse has gotten to the point right now where you have kids starting at 9, 10, 11 years old abusing drugs. And for me, anything that has to do with drugs is a no-go. I mean, this is what I do. You know, I've been doing my career for, for many years uh, prior to what I'm doing now. And truly, I feel that marijuana itself is a gateway drug, so I'm not a proponent of making it legal. Well said. All right. Take me to school here. What's the drug or drugs that are doing the most damage in our high schools right now from what you're seeing? There, there, there's so many different drugs out there, but I will tell you this, that pills are still one of the easiest drugs to get, um, you know, type of Xanax and oxycodone and things like that. Why? Because kids go out there and do these, you know, rainbow parties, you know, where they go out there. Um, uh, just to go back, I was on the task force for three years, which was a government, uh, the actual president actually initiated our task force when the oxycotton craze was happening down here in Florida. And we, you know, overdoses left and right, left and right. Predominantly now, uh, my position as a police officer, I am a field training officer, so I go out there and I train new recruits. We see what we're seeing on the street right now, number one and foremost, is heroin. Heroin is killing people across the board big time. Uh, that fentanyl that they're lacing the, the heroin with is killing people across the board. Fentanyl is for elephants, right, to... <laughs> to um, basically take away from the pain from this used for elephants and very severe cancer patients. And we're seeing uh, the lacing of heroin with fentanyl. People are just dying, overdosing all day long. To answer your question here, oxycodone is still very prevalent with the younger uh, generation because it can go in their parents' cabinet, get the pills, mix them, and do one of these rainbow parties where there's hundreds of different pills. Kids take them, pop them, get high, unfortunately overdose and some die. All right, let's switch that over to another problem with the schools. Unfortunately, there's been a rise in school shootings, as we know. How do you feel about putting cops in the schools or what's your take on the topic? 
All right. Um, as far as active shooters and, and security in schools, I mean, it's a must, okay? I mean, and this has been something that should have been, you know, 10 years ago, all right? this The focus should have been. It didn't need to take so many shootings to take place. However, when we talk about security, we need to have security that is trained specifically for active shooter scenarios, okay? Security is not just good enough to say, hey, we're going to get an armed guard here and that's going to stop the violence because it's not. The reality is that if these people that are there securing these schools do not have the training in hand to stop or at the very least slow down an active shooter, okay, that's a, that's very problematic because in reality then you're not doing a damn thing. Okay, so my my very, very specific outlook on security in schools is putting someone or putting multiple officers on the school that are trained specifically for active shooters. All right, I'll kind of use that to segue here into gun safety with kids. You obviously own some weaponry yourself. How do you handle or recommend handling gun safety with children? Well, there's many programs out there. The NRA has a couple, okay, as far as introducing guns to children. I think there is an age where children can understand a little bit more. Um, so I would say six years old is that age where a child can get introduced to a firearm, understanding and showing them the safety procedures on how to unload a firearm, how to hold a firearm properly, how to treat a firearm properly, understanding how all the mechanisms, believe it or not, on the firearm operate, okay? Uh, because the more children know and they understand at that, at that point, Okay, like my children have all been trained in firearm safety, okay? The way you hold it, the way that it's – we always treat every gun, right, as if it's completely loaded. We treat it with respect, and we never point that gun at anyone. We never put our finger on that trigger for anything, okay, unless you are needing to really hurt someone or even kill someone, right? I mean, that is – you know, you implement that tactic and, you know, these procedures and, and, and I guess for a lack of a better word, policies into your family and introduce that to your kids, that's a starting point. If you're going to start introducing this to kids in general out there, my only take on that is that introducing firearms should be by someone that, A, knows about firearms or more importantly, someone that might be close to the children, Okay. I'm not a believer that you have children just go out into into the playground and then some guy comes in and starts teaching children about firearm safety. I'm not big into that. I believe that it should come from the family, somebody close to the family, and kind of guide the children in that direction. Great advice right there. How about social media? You have a few kids that are right at the prime age for this. How do you monitor or kind of handle social media with the kids? Well, when it comes to social media, you know, my main objective is to make sure that their social media is, first of all, open. My 12-year-old is not even in social media. The only thing that he knows how to do is play Xbox, and he kind of does that. You know, he'll text his friends and things like that. But uh, at 12 years old, he's, he does not have any of the regular social media accounts um, at this point. Obviously, my older ones, okay, my 18-year-old, my 20-year-old, you know, they have their social media. And for me personally, you know, like I've always said to them, look, all right, you can be open in social media to a certain point, but 
for example, even me, myself, and, and, and I use myself as an example, I don't ever put where I'm at on social media. I'll always post it later, or I, even if I go on a live, for example, I'm not going to say, hey, I'm in this location. I've never done it. I've always, because so many cases that I've worked, unfortunately, of people trying to stalk and things like that, especially for them at a young age, I've always told them, listen, all right, in social media, be careful what you post, when you post it, because you're letting the entire world know where you're at and what you're doing. And a lot of times these kids post, you know, when they're maybe a little drunk or, you know, <laughs> passing out or in a club. The next thing you know, you put yourself in a position where you've let the whole world know where you're at and put yourself in a very vulnerable position. So I let them do their social media, but I'm very specific on how they post. And I will go in there and I will check it from time to time, no doubt. Good stuff. All right. Now, you've done a lot of negotiating, hostage negotiating. I've had to do a little bit of negotiating of my own, especially with my four-year-old when it's dinner time. Are there any tactics that you've learned from negotiating uh, that you can apply with your six-year-old? <laughs> listen, one of the things that I always say is this, all right? You have to listen to what anyone, even a six-year-old, the same thing with my daughter, okay? You have to listen to what she's saying. If you can kind of go in the route where you're communicating with what they're saying and stay on that same wavelength, you'll actually start to have a little bit of dialogue. And once that dialogue goes from there, you as the adult should be able to lead it somewhere, right? Lead it somewhere and kind of come back around to what you need to get done. The last thing I do with my, especially my daughter, right, is, is go head to head with her. Because in reality, a lot of times, and, and don't get me wrong, I am firm and I stand my point, but I do it in a way that it's much more conducive. A lot of people, you know, they, they like to tell their kids, you know, A, B, C, D, and then the child's not responding. But it's very, it's a little bit easier if you kind of guide the conversation and the dialogue to where they need it to go and then come right back around to where you need it to go. It might take 30 seconds of your time, and it'll make a huge, huge difference. The same the way we negotiate with, with you know, guys that want to jump off a bridge or have a hostage, right? You want to be able to hear what they're saying, listen to what they're saying, and kind of redirect the conversation back to where you need it to go. All right, I have to ask you this, especially since you've had your children in the same sequence as I did, three boys and then a girl. What's the biggest difference for you as a father from having all boys and then bringing the girl into the picture? Oh, boy, that's a great question. Um, well, having, <laughs> no doubt, having a girl change the dynamics, my outlook. Uh, typically with boys, it's that tough love. I'm, I'm a big believer in tough love and being able to say, hey, listen, you know what? You got to earn things. You have to really type, you know, step up. You got to go out there. You got to help with, you know, with the yard. You got to move the garbage. It's, it's that type of resiliency. Not that I don't teach that to my daughter because I do, but in a different way. I think I have to be more tactical. My daughter has so much estrogen. Okay. <laughs> she is, you know, she is as, uh, as prissy of a girl as you're ever going to find. So, so I have to be very careful the way that I approach things. The, the beautiful part that I, that for me as a father, when I look down on my daughter that has changed me, the way that I, that I manage my boys versus I manage my girl is that I have to be much more, uh, I have to be a little bit kinder, a little bit softer, 
Uh, I got even when I'm in heated situations at home with, with my boys, you know, discipline and then and, and I have to just when I talk to her, I have to calm down and be very, very calm about my demeanor. The second that I explode, all right, it, 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 I see a detachment. She's very close to me, so she gets nervous, you know, and she goes, yeah, for me personally, it has been the drastic difference in the way that I, A, discipline, and B, communicate, no doubt. Great points. Okay, I know you have a very huge event coming up, uh, the Conclave of Warriors. Please tell my listeners about it and where they can find out more information on it. Awesome, man. Well, Conclave of Warriors, this is going to be the most empowering event of the year, downtown Miami, December 1 and 2. All right, we're talking about something that has never been done today. Uh, or I don't think ever having these guys together under one roof. Uh, it's all about understanding that you can strengthen your mindset, your self-confidence, your, your self-discipline, not only in becoming a better person, becoming a better parent, becoming someone truly that has, you know, that lives a life with a purpose. So important. Guys, go to conclaveofwarriors.com and uh, you can get more information there. All right, dads, definitely go check that out. That is an event you do not want to miss. Uh, do you have any other kind of projects coming up that we could be looking forward to? Anything else that you're working on? Yeah, we have uh, have a book on the pipeline. I don't really like to talk about it, but it should be, you know, hopefully out here over the next few months also. Uh, we have a uh, major event uh, happening after that conclave of wars that I will be announcing, and uh, I'll definitely give you, you know, a shout, letting you know what uh, what we're doing there. Uh, one last thing I'd like to get you on. I'd like to ask all the dads that I have on the podcast here. What kind of advice could you give the new father or the about-to-be father that's out there listening? Oh, that's great. Uh, what I like to say is this, all right? We, as new parents, okay, we're going to be rookies just like police officers, right? Just like the newbie white belt that gets on the mat. We're all going to be beginners, okay? So it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to be nervous from time to time. It's, it, you know, it's okay to, you know, if you're confused to go out there on the internet and if you got to research some stuff, all great and dandy. But more importantly, above all that, okay, understand that patience is supreme. Okay. Kids, babies are going to test the heck out of you. Crying, waking up at night, doing things that you're not used to. The uncomfortable part of it is going to be there. Patience is the key. To being a parent, especially a new parent, being patient that will carry you so far throughout. Okay, that's going to wrap it up. First class father, Rafa Conde, thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time here on First Class Fatherhood. Thanks for having me on. It's been an honor, man. All right, we'll be right back after a quick spot. NFW Watches. First Class Fatherhood has proudly partnered with NFW Watch Company, and now you could take advantage with this exclusive offer. NFW Watch Company was founded on making badass watches that help people, mostly veterans. Get over to nfwonline.com, and listeners can save 15% off their entire order, plus get free domestic shipping by entering the promo code FATHER at the checkout. NFW Watch is made by a badass with a big heart nfwonline.com and use the promo code FATHER. Welcome back to First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now is a first class father. He is an immigrant from a communist country turned hugely successful entrepreneur. 
He is the hidden genius that entertainers, New York Times best-selling authors, and thought leaders turn to when they want to create highly profitable and industry-dominating brands and businesses. He is the founder and CEO of Fit Body Bootcamp. It is a great privilege for me to say Bedros Koulian. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, Bedros, let's get this going here. How many kids do you have and how old are they? I've got two kids. I've got uh, Chloe, who's 11 years old, and Andrew, who's 13. Awesome. Okay, what type of sports or activities are they into? You know, my uh, my son is into soccer and football, and uh, my daughter is into volleyball right now. And it's amazing to see how they love activities. They love music. In fact, the daughter plays piano. My son plays uh, the guitar. And... It's crazy because I'm an immigrant to this country, and I was six years old when we came to the United States, so I never was involved in music and arts and fitness and exercise. So to me, it's just wonderful to see my kids so active in in every area. Very cool. Now, did you ever have the opportunity to coach the kids, or do you kind of steer away from that and cheer them off from the sideline? You know, since I was never involved in sports, I don't know much about sports, to be honest with you, which also makes me a great husband because my wife's like, hey, football, basketball, baseball, doesn't matter. You never watch it. Um, so thankfully, they have great coaches, and I'm just on the sidelines encouraging them along. Okay. All right, Bedros, please take a minute here to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what it is that you do. Absolutely. So as I said earlier, I call myself the immigrant edge and the American dream because we escaped communist Soviet Union in 1980. I was six years old and uh, came to the United States. And my father took a big risk when we escaped. And the reason he took a big risk is, you know, no one is ever supposed to escape communism and come to a free country like the United States. And so when he did that, the thing that he was doing was really giving my, myself and my older brother and sister the opportunities that he never had. And um, he said, look, as long as you serve this country and solve problems for people, you'll have the opportunity and freedom to make as much money as you want, to make as much impact as you want. And so that was such a very compelling message to me. It always stuck with me. So in that time, as I grew up in this country, um, you know, we had, we had a pretty rough man. There was times we were eating out of the dumpsters. My dad had, had discovered um, the grocery stores have these giant dumpsters behind them, and when food expires, they can't sell them, so they have to throw it away. And uh, so that's, you know, times we were digging out of dumpsters and getting food that was expired but still edible. Other times, uh, because we lived in Section 8 housing, which means the government assisted with our rent, you know, it wasn't in the best parts of town and it wasn't the cleanest of, of apartment complexes. And one time, it was two years after we got to the United States, so I was eight years old and uh, I got lice. And my mom and dad couldn't afford lice treatment. At that time, you know, every single one of my family members, older brother, older sister, mom, dad, they had multiple jobs, pumping gas, working at a pizzeria, um, you know, being, you know, on tables at restaurants and every penny counted. So because of that, my mom, instead of spending money to buy life treatment, she had my dad siphon out gasoline parked car in the neighborhood and wash my hair with gasoline to kill the lice. And I'm just with you because, you know, uh, that, that's why I talk about the immigrant edge. Like when you don't have the resources, you get resourceful for your kids. And my my parents were so resourceful for us. You know, we didn't have a Christmas the first couple of years, but that was okay. We just you know sat around and sang, and 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 music was a very big thing for us. And because of that, I, I never felt like I missed out on Christmas, if you know what I mean. So 
moving forward then, as I grew up, I grew up overweight and out of shape. And, you know, again, it was never in sports or anything. And so a friend of mine in high school introduced me to weightlifting and working out. Well, before you know it, I've just been bitten by the fitness bug. So as I left high school, I opened up a personal training. Well, I started personal training at a big box gym at first, working for someone, and then ultimately ended up opening up my own personal training studio. And then that one studio turned into five studios. And before long, you know, today, of course, we have 714 locations of our Fit Body Bootcamp franchises worldwide. And, um, man, I'm just so blessed and thankful that, you know, fitness is a big part of my life. And I give my family and my kids, especially the experiences and the lifestyle I never had. So it's just such a blessed life. Wow. Yeah. What an amazing story, Bedros. It's truly inspirational. Now, let me ask you this. What could you say to the immigrant father who's out there listening and he's uh, new to the country and he's stuck in some kind of job that he hates and he feels like there is no such thing as the American dream? You know, I would say it's the opposite, actually. The American dream has never been more attainable to be. And, and I'll say that because, remember, when when I came to this country, there was no Internet. There was no social media. There was no uh, iPhones and Androids. And so you had to go and beg for a job. Even if you had this amazing solution in your head that you thought of in your other country, you were a good problem solver. If, you, if you're an immigrant, hell, if you weren't a non-immigrant, it doesn't matter. You certainly didn't have the resources. Today, the Internet allows you. Let me give you an example. Let's say someone in another country has figured out a better way to make a craft, right? They, they figured out how to make a craft or, they, or to cook a meal or to, uh, like in my dad's case, he was a tailor, how to, and what he specialized in especially was high-end men's suits. And when men would get a cigarette burn in their suits, and let's say the pants were pinstripe suits, he would cut a piece of the hem out um, of the uh, of the pants, and then he'd he'd make the lines line up perfectly, and he'd seam the pants back up so that you know two three thousand dollar custom suit now is back together. Now, when my dad came, of course, he had to deliver newspapers and pump gas and work at a pizzeria. But imagine if there was an internet, he could simply go online and create a how-to video on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. And through that how-to videos, he could show off his skill sets of solving a problem. Remember, that's what my dad said, solve a problem and serve this country. And when you do that, you have all the money and impact and meaning that you want. And so he could showcase his problem solving. And so people tell me, well, look, I've got this great idea, but I don't know how to launch a business. I tell them, look, the American dream is alive and well. You can go to wordpress.com and make a free website like, it's free. You don't have to hire a web developer. You don't have to buy a, a online shopping cart because you can go to PayPal and it's free. It'll just take a small percentage of the money that you charge people as payment. You don't need a video team or a marketing department because if you have a – and everyone has an iPhone or some kind of an Android, you can make how-to videos on social media and build up your authority in your specific niche market, whether, again, it's cooking or being a tailor or – or in my case, helping personal trainers grow their gyms. And as you build your authority, people say, hey, can I work with you? Can I pay you to coach me further? Can I do you have a course that I can buy from you? Do you have a how-to kit? And it's so easy today. The barrier is lower than ever. It's just most people don't realize that, that barrier is now the Internet and not necessarily looking for others to get a paycheck from. 
Okay, we're going to get the man up in just a minute here, but I kind of wish there was almost like a PG version of the book for preteens out there. It seems like there's a big gap from when kids are like, say, four years old, and we're telling them, you could be anything you want to be when you grow up, dream big, the sky is the limit. But then by the time they're teenagers getting ready for college, we're yelling at them, hey, just go out there and get any job. Go to college and study anything. So how can we kind of uh, navigate our kids through that change and prevent them from just conforming to society? Good, good question. And it starts with the parents because parents just go, Hey, this, I did this. And so you have to go through this pain too. I went to, when the parents don't know any other alternative, they go, do what I did. Go get good grades, go to school. You're going to get school debt unless you go in with a scholarship or something. And then when you get out, pay off your school debt and then work for a good company that's going to keep you around, work up the food chain. And over time, you might retire with pension and a gold watch, well, those days are gone. What the parents should be saying is the way I did it was wrong or the way I did it was right for that time. Today, we live in a new economy, yet the parents are too stubborn to take their head out of the sand and look around and go, oh, my gosh, if you've got a solution to a problem, the Internet will help you spread that solution virally, quickly, force multiply, time collapse. And so for that to happen, parents need to read books like, like my book, Man Up, where they understand that you can be on the exponential growth financially and not the linear growth of, okay, I, a year went by, so I better get my, you know, one and a half to three percent increase in pay, which at times doesn't even, doesn't even match what inflation is, you know? And so at the end of the day, and YouTube is out there. Like, I'm teaching my kids, son, go to YouTube, daughter, go to YouTube and watch what other kids are doing your age who are entrepreneurial. I take them out of school and I take them to speaking events with me so that when others are on stage speaking, they're learning. I've taught my kids how to build rapport since the age of seven. I would take my son to speaking events and I would say, son, here's three things you're going to ask someone. When you meet anyone, you shake their hands, you look them in the eye, and you ask them, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? Those are good rapport-building questions and conversation starters. When I was seven years old, man, I... Seven. Hell, when I was 17, I didn't know how to shake hands. I didn't know how to look a man in the eye. I didn't know what three or four questions to ask to, to start the conversation, to build rapport. All I wanted to do was just kind of hide in the corner, not be seen, and hope that people would just walk by. And so parents need to use the resources they have. The Internet has free information. Heck, if someone just followed me on Instagram alone, they would know how to raise their kids to turn them into what I call modern-day knights and entrepreneurs. Yes, am I rough around the edges? Yes, am I very, very firm? Am I a control freak? Am I very black and white? Absolutely. I'm very polarizing. But if you want your kids to have the best shape at life, they're going to follow people like me and Gary Vaynerchuk and Ed Milet. And there's free content out there. Tom Bilyeu. There's so much great content teaching kids that college is not the way unless you specifically want to be a, a doctor, specifically want to be an engineer, an accountant, an architect, an attorney. Outside of that, if you're just going to be a bean counter for someone, there's probably something better you can do that will give you more meaning, a greater sense of satisfaction, greater control over your life and time, and, of course, money, way more money than you could ever make counting beans for someone else. Yeah, I definitely hear that from college kids. Uh, as I hustle Uber on the weekends, most of these kids have no idea what they're studying, why they're studying it, and what they plan on doing with what they're studying. 
It's that, and then they have such a negative outlook on fatherhood and family life as if it's something that they they need to avoid for the rest of their life. And I I shake my head because I try to tell them, you know, you guys have it all wrong. Fatherhood is is not something to avoid. It's really something to embrace. That's exactly it. But, I mean, look at the examples they've had. And and I'm not dissing any fathers or any generations. I'm just saying, you know, these, you know, fathers before me. I mean, thankfully, I grew up, I was just on the starting edge of the Internet, like in 1996. Someone gave me a laptop, a Toshiba laptop, and I was getting those AOL discs in the mail. And I'm like, I'm going to pop this thing in and see what it's about. Like, I started with dial-up, man. And I'm so glad I did. And I knew there's something about this Internet thing, this AOL thing, this Earthling thing that's going gonna, it's gonna to be big. And I started my first online business, TotalMuscle.com, which was an online supplement store. I didn't make a single penny. I lost $55,000 from it. There was no Google, no Facebook, no nothing. But as a young man of at the time, let's see, I was – 1997, I graduated in 1993, so I was probably like 21, 22 years old. Instead of going to college, I decided, you know what? I see that people did purchase supplements from me, just not fast enough. And so some of these supplements would expire, ironically, you know, and I'd have to throw them, throw them away. And so I realized, well, I think I'm just ahead of the curve. I think if there becomes a platform where I could buy traffic from, right, like, Old advertising is television ads and billboard ads and stuff. New advertising is social media ads and Google pay-per-click ads, et cetera. And all this to say that I didn't have a dad to teach me. I just stumbled upon the Internet and knew that this was a game changer. But you watch what happens two generations from now when these millennials become parents and they go, hey, kid, uh, you don't have to go to college. Look, I work off my laptop. Dude, I, I know four different guys, all millennials, that work off their laptop. And they're certified to write emails for small businesses because, as you know, small business owners, they build an email list, but they don't know how to email and what kind of message to communicate. So these young, young guys and gals just travel the world, work off their laptops, sitting in, in cabanas all over the world, and they charge each client two or $3,000 a month to do their email marketing for them. Well, you get five or six clients, hey, they you got a good six-figure income. You know, off your laptop. And so these millennials are going to tell their kids, there's a better way. You don't have to go into debt. You don't have to go to college and wait four years and let someone else get ahead of you. But unfortunately, the kids today, the example, the blueprint they had was the dad who's bitter because he went to college. He got the degree in engineering. He got the degree in graphic design. He's seeing a lot of that stuff being outsourced overseas for pennies. He's got the debt, but he doesn't have any money to show for it. And what he thought he was going to have 20 years later, he doesn't have. So he might be Ubering on the side. He might be driving Lyft. He might be working a second job, but yet his kid comes to him for advice, and the only piece of advice is go to college, get in debt, and do what I did, hoping that maybe it'll work out better for the kid than it did for him. And it's not going to. College is not the answer. Yeah, and the Internet has made a lot of people a ton of money, there's no doubt. But two things that I see too much of is, one, there is there seems to be a breakdown of communication among teenagers and adolescents. And it seems that uh, most young people on the Internet are just displaying a, a me, me, me message. So how can we get them to turn around that philosophy and get them to use the Internet to provide a service to other people and not just a celebration of themselves? That's a really good question. And unfortunately... And the internet, like everything else, is a double-edged sword, right? Like, you take aspirin, people, you know, like my, my father, he's still alive, he's 84 years old. He takes two, two baby aspirins a day, the 81 milligram aspirins a day, because it thins his blood out, because he's had a heart attack once before. 
Now, if he was to take a handful of aspirin, it would probably over time, over a very short period of time, it would burn a hole in his stomach, and of course, he'd pass away. So while aspirin does many lots of good for him, there's a potential of battery. So while the Internet has so much opportunity, it still is relatively new, and we don't know really how to use social media. Most of them, like I do, I took the time to learn and understand, and I, I realized that it's about how can I serve you instead of what can you do for me? And, hey, you should look at me and look how awesome I am. It's all about how can I serve you? How can I inspire you? How can I motivate you? How can I give you an edge in life? Here's what's going to happen. We're already seeing that social media, especially when people bust out their phones and then swipe to refresh their social media to see how many likes and comments and followers they have, that's called variable response. That swipe is the same thing as when a an addicted gambler goes to a casino and pulls the handle on a slot machine hoping that they get the triple sevens. They get that dopamine hit. They get the reward. Of course, most of the time what happens? You don't get the likes and the loves and the comments that you want. You don't get the triple sevens all the time. But it creates this variable response mechanism that, hey, if I just keep pulling the handle every now and again, I get rewarded with a dopamine hit. And dopamine is very addictive, very addictive. When, when people start doing heroin and, 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 and these methamphetamines, it, this is a dopamine rush that we get addicted to. It's the same dopamine that gets pumped out when you're you know, swiping down over and over again. It becomes very addictive. So my point here is we're seeing the addiction take control. We're going to very quickly see that all these people who are using social media, and it's all me, 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 yeah, they have followers. Yeah, they have people who are maybe liking and commenting, but you can't take followers to, to the bank. Followers aren't dollars. And so soon they're, they're going to ask, and they're already asking me, because remember, I coach and consult this younger generation now. They're asking me and guys like my business partner, Craig Ballantyne. One guy sent me a direct message and said, hey, Bedros, I have 1.7 million followers, but I've got $2,600 left in my bank account. Help me. What do I do? And I went and looked at his social media site. And it's like you said, it's me, 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 me. And he's a millennial. It's all about him. Now, it's not that millennials are bad. They're just more me-driven. Remember, we were that way, too. The difference is we didn't have all this place to, to talk about me. We just had mom and dad to go, hey, mom, guess what I did today? Today I ran fast, and then I swam fast, and then I held my breath for a minute and a half. And it still is about me. It's just we were telling an audience of two or three or our friends. Now you can build an audience of hundreds of thousands and go me, 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 and they give you validation, and you start believing that's the right way to live. Well, soon they go, shit, I'm broke. And if I'm broke, I better start seeking out ideas. And so the tides will change. Again, we just need another generation to go by. Good points. Okay, Bedros, please take a minute here and tell my listeners about your new book, Man Up. Absolutely. So Man Up is really a book about peak performance and leadership, not only leadership in business, but in leadership in life, to, to lead your family, to lead your kids, to lead your finances, to lead your health, to lead your mindset. And I'll be very honest, very open, very transparent with you here. There was a time, so in 2010, I started my franchise, Fit Body Boot Camp, which is a location where we have 714 locations worldwide. By 2013, I was losing more locations than gaining every month. I was in big, I was in massive debt. My relationship with my wife was suffering. My health was suffering. I'd gained 30 pounds of fat. I was drinking NyQuil every night, night to go to sleep and then take, drinking a ton of coffee and taking Adderall in the mornings to wake up. And so I realized this is not a problem of bad employees or bad franchisees, bad customers, bad marketing competition, but I was blaming it on them. I was blaming it on everybody else. 
Instead, it was a problem of me. And so what I did over the next three years is I decided that I'm going to man up. And this isn't just for men, by the way. You know, plenty of women have to man up as well. And people ask, well, what does man up mean? Well, we've all heard the term, hey, man, man up and go after the girl of your dreams. Hey, man, man up and go to your boss and ask for that raise. Hey, man, man up and do the right thing. It really is a call to action. But what it means in my world is man up and stop making excuses, take control of your situation, and rise to your potential. See, we all have a greater potential. We feel that potential inside. But we think that it's going to be easier than it really is. In reality, it is tough to achieve wealth, health, a strong relationship, a positive mindset, build a business, raise amazing kids who I consider to be modern-day knights. And so you need to lead. And so leadership, to me, is broken down, or peak performance is broken down into six categories. And that's what I talk about in my book, Man Up, and it starts with pillar number one, self-discipline. You're not going to lead a business or your family or your health or your mindset or your money until you're self-disciplined. And self-discipline is a whole, like, you know, probably about 12, 13 pages in, in, in that chapter dedicated to all the different areas of self-discipline. But I'll give you one, one, specific, one specific tip here. I challenge the listeners of this podcast right now to go and look inside their cars objectively. Are there empty Starbucks cups? Are there empty food wrappers? Are there cans of soda, empty soda cans thrown around, old clothes that you haven't taken out and washed yet? If your car is a mess in a pig pen, well, don't you believe that as humans we are top of the food chain? Shouldn't we live better than animals? Why is your car a mess? If the inside of your car is a mess, and I believe how you do anything is how you do everything, so if the inside of your car is a mess, it's safe to assume that if I went into that person's workspace, their desk would be a mess. Then if I went into their head, their mindset would be a mess. If I went into their relationship, their relationship would be a mess and chaotic. If I went into their bank account, their bank account would be a mess, and their health, and then their, 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 their kids, it's, So it really does become this domino effect. So self-discipline for pillar number one. It's clear communication, pillar number two. It's being decisive, pillar number three. It's having clarity of vision. What do you want from your life? And when do you want it by? Set a deadline. That's pillar number four. Not being emotionally reactive is pillar number five. So many people are so reactive. What if we can just be responsive to issues? Look, life's going to give us problems. Let's stop being emotionally reactive and doing the chicken little dance. Instead, stop, take a deep breath, step back, and ask, is this problem happening to me because I'm a bad person, because I deserve it, or is it just a life circumstance? Most of the time, it's a life circumstance, and we we just stop reacting emotionally and step back. We can come up with many different scenarios to respond to the problem and rise to the greater potential. And then finally, the sixth and final pillar is to build a team around you, a team of friends, family who can hold you accountable to your self-discipline, to your vision. And if you're going to build a business, a team of employees who are on the same page, committed to working hard and have this fighter jet mentality instead of this crop duster mentality. And that's really what Man Up is. Stop making excuses, take control of your situation and rise to your potential. Awesome. Yeah, I love the book. I got to say thank you so much for sending me an advanced copy of it. Uh, please tell me, where is the best place for my listeners to go and grab a copy? And then I will make sure to include that link in the description of this podcast episode. Well, I appreciate you doing that. The best place your listeners can go to, and they'll get a free $2,000 course where I go deeper into the man-up mantra and break down every pillar of the six pillars of being, being a peak performer is manup.com. They just go to manup.com. They can get the book there. 
And, of course, they can also learn how to get the $2,000 course absolutely free. Awesome. And that link will be in the description, guys. So please do not miss out on that offer. Just tap the link. It's going to bring you right there. Uh, you'll find out all the information you need to. All right, Bedros, last thing I'm going to hit you with here. I'd love to ask all the dads I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new dad or for that about-to-be father who's out there listening? Good question. The advice that I have for the new dad or the dad that's out there listening is that someone is going to raise your kids, and it might as well be you. And here's what I mean by that. I make an attempt I have one-on-one conversation with my kids anytime I can. Whether me and my son are in the backyard shooting pelicans or my daughter and I are taking a drive to yogurt land to get some yogurts, to have the type of one-on-one conversation where I'll say, hey, honey, I'm going to open your door, sweetie, and you go inside. In the future, as you grow up and you have a friend who's a boy and you like him and you go on a date like mommy and I go on a date, if this boy doesn't open your door like I open mommy's door and your door, you turn right back around and you come home or you call daddy, he can pick you up. And so I have these conversations in, in times where, you know, it's non-threatening. We're in the car. We're, 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 we're maybe outside in the backyard with pellet guns, et cetera. But I'm instilling core values in my kids. That's what I mean when I say raise. Someone's going to raise your kids and educate your kids. They're either going to become modern-day knights and active members of society, or they're going to become entitled little brats if society raises them, because unfortunately society says, hey, you should depend on the government, you should depend on the man, if everyone, someone else is your responsibility. And so I instill these in my kids because I don't want anyone else raising them. Well said. All right, Bedros Cooley, and I would just like to say thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time right here on First Class Fatherhood. Thank you so much for your opportunity. I appreciate it. All right, I'll be right back after a quick spot. Welcome back to First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now is a first class father who served 10 years with the Navy SEAL teams. He is a very intense motivational speaker. He has appeared in films such as Captain Phillips. He is the co-host of the JR Overcome Show. He is a health and fitness coach and so much more than that. It is really my honor to say, Ray Cash Care, welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, taking the time now. All right, let me fire off a few questions here. How many kids do you have, and how old are they? I have two children, sir. I have a 24-year-old named Michael, and I have a 10-year-old daughter named Nyla. Okay, what type of sports or activities are your kids into? Well, my son was into football, and then he transferred my son, Michael. Uh, he transferred into jiu-jitsu. Uh, and then my daughter is 10 years old, and she is three-time state champion in gymnastics. So... A uh, little background about my children. My son, Michael, was from a previous marriage with my wife, and I adopted him when he was 14. He's now 24, and my daughter is mine. So, you know, he didn't have the parenting that he needed, so I, I stepped up to the plate, and I was gracious and honored to do it. And, you know, he calls me dad, and, you know, I still get on him like I did, you know, how all dads get on their sons, and uh, hopefully we're going to live happily ever after. Did you have your daughter while you were still serving in the Navy, or did she come after the service? I got out of the military in 2004. My daughter was not born until 2008. Um, I was doing some, we'll just say some security consulting work. So I'm still doing what I can, you know. Got a wife who's a stay-at-home mom, and we're just we're just trudging, trudging along. 
Okay, let's take a deep dive here. You had a bit of a troubled childhood yourself. Your father died in a very tragic way when you were younger. How has that experience affected the way you are as a father? Well, losing my father at a young age, obviously, you know, left a, a, a deep scar. He wasn't, I don't want to say he was a bad dad. He was my dad, but he was a very violent man. Um, he believed in solving problems with hands or belts. Um, I try not to hit my children. Um, I, I've learned from that. My, my wife is more of a disciplinary of the household. Um, I step in when I need to, but I don't know how it is with most families. But, uh, you know, I'm like I told you before, I'm work in progress. My children wouldn't be who they are without their mother. I, I you know, I do, I do as best I can, but she is the foundation of this family of what we call teen care. So I wish, I know this is, uh, you know, we're talking about dads, but, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have a wife who is, who steps up to the plate. I think it helps me do my job, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I'm blessed right alongside you there to have my wife. And we are still on the job training ourselves. And, you know, from growing up with a with a family the way you did, that it's very important to keep the family intact and, and not having that family intact can can really do a lot of damage to the child. And it does. It's true what they say. It takes a village to raise a child. It, it is. And, you know, like I said, with scarring, you know, I'm a little abrasive with certain things, you know, um, that I think men can relate to a little bit more. But when it comes to a little girl. Um, you know, daddy's little girl, you know, if you have anybody who has a daughter, you know, it's hard for me to, you know, I would never spank my daughter. Uh, I try not to ever raise my voice at my daughter. I try to treat her mother the way that I would want her to be treated. Um, but again, you know, it's, it's definitely work in progress. It's tougher with a little girl because, you know, with a boy, if you can relate, you know, he's 24. I've taught him he has the essential tools and the foundations to start his own family. You know, I, I, I know that he can handle himself, uh, that he's going to be a provider just like I was. With a girl, I know they say it's, the, it's not the same. Daddy's always going to worry about his little girl in a different manner. You know, you want to make sure that someone is taking over to protect her. So I have, you always have more to worry about with a daughter. You know, I have the frogman's curse of a daughter. And uh, it's just going to keep me on my toes uh, and keep me sharper than I ever needed to be. So, Yeah, I definitely hear that. I had my three boys first and then got my little princess there. So um, there's three dominoes that have to fall down before Pop gets involved here. All right, let me hit you with a little scenario here. As a Navy SEAL, you're obviously super observant. Uh, what advice do you have for the father who's walking down the street in the city or in the neighborhood and wants to identify any threats or potential danger to his family? What kind of advice do you have for us? Oh, wow. You know, that's a good question. You know, I've actually, my daughter is 10 now, and I've already taught her about uh, situational awareness. She knows to look for groups of people. I have already taught my daughter how to keep space, just like my wife. Um, I have a contingency plan for everything, so I have taught my daughter um, and my wife, especially when they're alone, about, you know, how to walk at night, stay stay in lighted areas, be careful with rounding corners. Um, my daughter and wife actually know how to pie corners and check corners, but they're doing this very indiscreetly. So they're not causing, you know, they're not raising um, awareness. You know, people are noticing that, you know, my wife and daughter look like they're conspiracy theorists, but... You know, <laughs> Uh, a, a good case in point, and I'll talk real quick on this, is in Virginia Beach a few years ago, we had that – there was kids playing what's called the knockout game. 
So I was teaching my wife to look for certain trigger mechanisms, kids that were coming up to you abruptly asking for questions. If you saw a group of people with cell phones and then a, a young man walked up to you because my daughter is 10 years old, and this is two things that I promise you. She still holds daddy and mommy's hands, and she always holds my support side hand when I'm walking. I'll leave it at that because, you know, I, I'm not going to get into anything else, but I'm always prepared. We'll leave it at that, and so is my wife when we're out in town. We have the paperwork that we need to protect ourselves if something were to happen, and my daughter knows what side to be on um, if I ever have to engage. We'll leave it at that. I'm watching how I talk because this is an episode on children, but I will do anything, and I repeat anything, to protect my children and my family from the roots of evil that the earth has. Well said. Well said. Thank you. Okay, you've handled some of the most powerful weapons on the planet. I'm sure you still maintain an impressive array of weaponry in the home. How do you feel about having guns in the home, and what advice do you have with regards to gun safety with children? Uh, Has your daughter already learned how to shoot? That was a fantastic question. Guns don't kill people. I want to make this very clear. I think uneducated people that don't respect the firing, the weapon system itself, and and these individuals and children that all they do is they watch a video game, um, that they're the kind of kids and, and people, individuals, they can even be grown-ups, that when they get behind the weapon and they don't respect it or understand it, that's where accidents occur. My daughter is 10 years old. Have I taken her to the range yet? No, sir, I have not. Am I going to? Yes. But um, we have, you know, biometric safes in the house. We have two, one by each of our beds. Uh, my wife has a Glock 43. I have a Glock 17 for home defense, up to a 45, and then I have bigger things in a safe. But my daughter has been programmed, and that's what I want to put out here. It's all about programming with everything that we do. You know, you can teach a child that a, a stove is hot. They won't touch it, correct? Yeah, exactly. You can teach a child at a young age not to touch a firing weapon, and as they mature, depending on their capabilities and how they're you know, how their behavior is, then as a parent, it's our job to implement that education and teach them. Um, I plan on teaching my daughter probably in the spring of next year how to fire a weapon. Some people go, Cash, that's insane. No, it's not. What's insane is is having something in the house if, you know, God forbid me or my wife left something around and my daughter didn't have the education and the know-how to know not to touch that. So as a parent, it's our job to teach our children. So I think the same case in point um, applies when you're talking about weapons. Yes, um, I do have weapons in the house. Yes, um, myself and my wife are concealed weapons carriers. Yes, my son is also. And yes, my daughter will learn how to shoot a weapon, not only to protect herself, but, you know, in the worst case scenario, you know, we are a family. This is our home. If anybody tries to come into our home, they will be met with the proper punishment that would, I guess, that the situation would dictate. Man, it sounds, it sounds like a bad day for the guy who, who stumbles into your house there, boy. Um, all right, let me use that to kind of segue into the school system. There's been a rise in school shootings, as we know. How do you feel about putting armed guards or cops with guns in the school system? Are you comfortable with that? I'm a, I'm a firm believer that I think we do need to have a footprint slash presence of of whether it's off-duty police officers, 
obviously cleared and uh, qualified ex-military, whatever. I do think that, you know, the school shootings now, you know, have seemed like they've almost become a fad. You know, when we were kids, you know, I'm 46 years old. You never, this wasn't even thought of. No one even thought of this kind of horrible thing. My daughter goes to a private school, a Christian academy. Um, you know, they've done what they can. I would even like to take it one step farther because, you know, we have all these active shooter drills for when shooters are outside the school, but when shooters are inside the school, reaction time no matter what. There can be no reaction time quick enough unless you have something in there to disrupt whatever chaos he's causing, as in, you know, if it takes us five minutes to get a reaction time, they, people could say that's a great time. But is that a great time if your kid's in that school? No. No, it's not. Yeah. The quickest response time is to have armed personnel in there to detour that situation as it's happening. Um, I don't think we can be too cautious. I don't think there's no amount of money that you can put a price on a child. I know I can't, but there's no price that I would put on my daughter. You could offer me a billion dollars and say, we'll take a chance of your daughter being in a active shooter, you know, situation, a real life, but in the chances of her being okay or 10%, I would tell someone to take a flying leap. No. There's no amount of money. We need to have individuals in schools armed to protect our most valuable assets that we have on the planet, and that is our children, our future. I agree with that. Okay, you're very big into health and fitness, as I know. What's some advice you can shoot to the working dad that's out there listening who's struggling with staying in shape between bouncing back and forth, between jobs, overtime, taking the kids to practices? Uh, what's a little bit of advice you could give us about health and fitness? You know, tip one I always tell people, I have seven points of performance in everything I do. They all, it all falls into the seven points of performance of shooting. And the one thing that I tell dads, I give them number one and number two of, of fitness. Uh, Number one is, is you have to believe in yourself. And people go, well, what does it have to do with fitness? Well, I'll tell you. You have to make the conscious decision to try to get healthier, to live longer, in this case in point, to be a better dad, provider, husband, father, whatever it is. And then number two, I tell everybody, it's about prepping. So people go, well, Cash, I'm always on the run. I'm always this. I don't have the money. This is what I'll tell you. I prep, well, my wife, knock on wood, I'm blessed, um, preps all my meals on Sunday. You know, I, I tell every single person, whether you have to brown bag or whatever it is you have to do, stop going out and, and doing the fast food. You know, I know there's ways of doing it, but prep everything you can. Try to meal prep no matter what it is. Two meals a day. You know, you can take two meals a day to work and a, and a, a little piece of Tupperware and, and go out and buy a $60 thing of protein. And I guarantee if you're drinking a gallon of water a day, you will lose weight within a six-month period. I've taken individuals from 380 pounds and in one year got them down to 256 pounds. Wow. And for the first six months, all I had them do was prep meals and walk. We didn't start incorporating weights until that because he didn't have time. I can get people in shape if they're on the proper meal plan for a certain, an extended period of time. Ten minutes a day, I can get somebody in shape. Ten minutes a day. I know – there's a, all parents out there have 10 minutes a day that they can put aside. Great advice. All right. You've been all over the world. What is your favorite vacation spot to bring the family? Well, family vacation spot for me personally is Disney. <laughs> I love, <laughs> okay. I love Disney and I love Disney for a multitude of reasons. One, um, obviously it brings the families together. You know, when you go there, you just, 
whenever I go to Disney, I just seem to let the outside world go for a while, and I just I turn into a kid for a while. Number two, um, from a security standpoint, they have got one of the most strategically sound um, lost uh, Amber Alert. We'll just leave it at that. Children being abducted plans on the planet. So not only when you know when you go there, you can almost I I, I want to say you let your guard down in the, the realms of reality, but the reason why you can do that is because you know that they have all the underground tunnels, they have all the cameras. It's just a safe haven where I can take my daughter and I can become a kid for a while. You know, we've gone to a lot of places, me and my wife, and, you know, I have I have more of a good time at Disney um, than I think they do, you know. I can just relax. That's you know, awesome. I have to carry a gun. I can just, you know, everything is included. It's, it's just a wonderful place, and it reminds me um, – what my idea of a great childhood would be. <laughs> well said. All right. One thing that many of us dads are struggling with who did not grow up in this social media world that our kids are growing up in is kind of how to monitor this whole thing and stay up to date with it. I know your daughter is on the younger side here. She's not ready for all that yet. But do you have any advice for us on how um, we could kind of monitor our Internet access or the social media accounts with our children? I do. I, 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 have, I have two or three pieces of advice. One um, there's so many different apps and things out there that you can do to monitor your, your children's social media thing. I think you need to take time and you need to establish rules with, you know, obviously the platforms, a phone or an iPad. Um, in our household, we, have, we look at our daughter's phone all the time. She's not allowed to delete anything without us knowing. And, you know, there are apps where you can go on and you can apply to see if they are erasing things. But, I think the real problem or the real thing that can help with that is you just have to have a relationship with your kids, you know, with your child, and you have to explain to them that, hey, listen, you know, you have to explain things about social media and that there are people that are going to try to talk to them. Case in point, um, if that were to happen with us, my daughter, if she sees anything from someone she doesn't know, she just comes up and says, Mommy and Daddy, I'm unsure about this. We've programmed her to do that. There have been people that have asked her to be friends on things, some little musically or something that she did. Um, I read an article about someone actually being abducted from it. It's gone. It's it's gone. And what I do is I explain to my daughter that I'm not punishing her. I am protecting her. And she is at the age now where she understands. She's starting to understand that things are happening in the world that don't make sense. And she understands. You know, I and I explain to her every day why was Daddy put on this earth to protect me and mommy. So. By doing that and programming programming her to understand and know that my job is to protect her, that when I make a decision or her mother makes a decision, it's for her own good. So I tell parents, develop that relationship with your child. I understand that there's single moms and dads that are out there and they don't have time, but it's all about time management. Okay, If I had to use one word with a parent, it's time management. Do what you can with what you got because I, I can't judge any parent out there, because believe me, I'm still work in progress, but developing a long-lasting relationship with your child of trust and, and giving and taking, you know, is, is huge. But yet you still have to have that, that firm hand when need be. Like my daughter knows that when my wife gives her a look, my wife doesn't have to spank my child. She doesn't have to, um, you know, threaten her to take things away. She, my wife can look at my daughter and she's like, I'm sorry, Mommy. Because through the years, we've developed and we've taken that time to establish 
the rules, the boundaries, the guidelines of what is expected of you as a daughter and what our responsibilities are as a parent. And she's understanding that now. Key is key. All right. Obviously, Navy SEAL career is in the books here. What's next for Ray Care? What do you got working on? What's motivating you right now, and what do you got coming up? I'll tell you. I'm actually uh, getting ready to sign with Jason Redman, a very good friend of mine, uh, colleague, mentor. Obviously, you know Jason. We're both fellow teammates. We were, we've known each other for 20-some years. I love public speaking. I love spreading the message about whether it's being a parent, whether it's being about a father. Um, I am called through my, you know, through my peers, the motivator, the educator, and the decimator. And people go, what does that mean? I love to put people through boot camp type exercises, kids, parents. I don't care if you're three or you're 100, but, you know, I'm going to start uh, doing some stuff with Jason, and we're going to start incorporating PT because I tell people pain is fuel, and sometimes lessons have to be, as hard as it sounds, some lessons have to be learned the hard way. And I like to start that from a very young age and incorporate that into kids. My daughter's a three-time state champion. She, you know, she has to she has to put out, she has to sacrifice. So what's next for me? A lot of public speaking. I just opened up a new website. We're going to be giving motivational tips. Um, I might be writing a book, um, and it's actually going to be titled Get Off Your Ass. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I like but, that. Um, and that's just uh, – that's some of the things that I have going on, um, and I'm super pumped, and all while maintaining some form of reality with being a dad, a husband, a father, and, you know, still providing for the family. Cool. All right. Last thing I want to hit you with here, I ask all the dads who I get on the podcast, what type of advice could you give to the new father or the about-to-be dad that's out there listening? If I had to give any advice, I would tell them, find the time to make to, to develop relationships and quality time with your kids um from a guy that was deployed for most of his kids being young you can't get that time back um i know i've I've hit on that word it's all about time management you've got to do what you can with what you got try not to break promises to your kids because um you know they remember they're like elephants my daughter can remember things from the from the youngest age make the time and and if you know you're going to be a dad and you if you stepped up to the plate Definitely, you know, you have to make the conscious decision that you're going to put your kids before you because, man, let me tell you what, as soon as you hold that little boy or girl in your hand, your life is your life is never going to be the same. I know you can relate, but um, until you're a father, it, it, it's, the, it's the – when my daughter was born, it was the greatest moment, the scariest moment of my life because, one, I had to grow up, and, two, um, I'm holding this, this creation that me and my wife created in our hand, and, you know – most beautiful little thing in the world and from that moment forth boy or girl your job is to pr- protect and provide for them until the day they die awesome all right that's going to wrap it up here i cannot say thank you enough for taking a few minutes out of your day to spend it here with me on first class fatherhood thank you sir i'm honored to be on ray care we'll be right back after a quick spot welcome back to first class fatherhood Joining me now is a first-class father. He is a former Navy SEAL. He is the best-selling author of Taking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 fail-safe principles for leading through change. He is a keynote speaker and so much more than that. It is my honor to say, Brent Gleason, welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you so much. It's great to be on the show. 
All right, let's get this started here. How many kids do you have and how old are they? <laughs> We've got three kids and uh, kind of working on the fourth, but uh, we have a 12-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 2-year-old currently. Awesome, awesome. What kind of denominations do you got right now, boys and girls? Uh, the oldest is uh, 12. His name is Tyler, and he just started seventh grade. We've got a four-year-old daughter named Parker Rose. Uh, she's in preschool starting on Monday. And we've got a two-year-old boy named Ryder James who will also be starting preschool for the first time uh, on Monday with, with his sister. What type of sports or activities are the kids into? Uh, Tyler, the oldest, is pretty much a flag football fanatic. Uh, wants to put the pads on maybe next year, but uh, these days flag football has become uh, pretty popular, and I think a lot of parents agree there's no point in putting the pads on until later. Um, and they're learning speed and fundamentals uh, and whatnot. And then Parker Rose, our daughter, is into dance and gymnastics and horseback riding. And we live in a very equestrian area, so uh, lucky me, she loves horses. <laughs> very expensive hobby, apparently. Yes, horses were very costly for me as well as a kid. Unfortunately, mine was with horse racing, so a little bit different, but I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> and then riders, too. So he just likes uh, walking around and breaking stuff. Okay, a little Hulk smasher. I've had one of them. Uh, do you coach at all, or do you prefer to watch more and coach from the sidelines? I, I'll, I'll assistant coach, but I travel so much. Uh, I mean, when I'm in town, I go to every practice. I go to every game. Uh, but I haven't been able to commit to full-time coaching just because uh, I travel almost every week. So, Okay, Brent, I know you put a big emphasis on leadership. We're going to hit on your book in just a minute here. Uh, but there is no bigger leadership role than fatherhood. So please tell me, how do some of your principles of leadership apply to fatherhood? Well, it's a great question. And, and actually, uh, a lot of the principles in uh, my book about leading through change um, – uh, we've I've talked about on other podcasts and TV shows related to how those principles can apply in a family setting. Uh, in fact, one of the TV shows I did during sort of the book promotion right after it came out was the Home and Family Show. And so they love the book, but they're like, let's take these principles and take a look at them from a family perspective, uh, a leadership aspect when it comes to parenting, especially fatherhood. And we got into a really good conversation about how those principles of uh, building uh, the culture that you want within your family. I mean, that's a leadership role, if not anything else. Uh, really defining and, and managing the family based on core values and instilling those core values in your in your children. Uh, obviously, you know, co-parenting with your spouse is uh, is a great leadership uh, exercise and challenge because uh, good leaders from the top uh, have to be totally aligned. Uh, in their approach and their value system and their communication. Obviously, <laughs> you know as well as I do and everybody else listening does, it's never going to be perfect, and it's a full-time job in and of itself. Um, but really finding that uh, that alignment, um, leading with the values, uh, instilling uh, faith, whatever that might be, sort of a faith-based um, parenting leadership approach, and then hoping for the best. <laughs> well said. What are some of the things you learned as a Navy SEAL that have helped you in fatherhood? I think if I had to start with a, a couple, it would be, be really discipline and accountability. Uh, those are two uh, aspects and, and somewhat of the burden of command of leadership is that you know, you've got to lead by example, you've got to lead from the top, and you can't expect discipline and accountability from those you lead unless you are uh, have the utmost levels of discipline and accountability yourself. Uh, and oftentimes you know, those sounds you know, kind of rigid, but – when you can be highly disciplined, it really does instill trust. Uh, it improves communication. 
um, and it really bonds any type of team uh, closer together. Uh, it improves the culture, it improves morale and efficiency. Same thing applies in a family setting. Uh, I have to hold myself accountable to the things I say I'm going to do and fulfill the promises that I, uh, that I make. Uh, and then if I can do that in a consistent manner, then I can expect the same, hopefully, from, uh, from my children. Okay, yeah, you know, that takes care of a bit of my next question, but I'll fire it off anyway here. How do you handle failures as a dad? Maybe blaming the wrong kid for the wrong thing, something along that line. Uh, through transparent communication, uh, taking ownership uh, over those failures and, uh, you know, apologizing, uh, depending on what it is. I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, it was last year and my oldest son, uh, who has, uh, you know, a bit of a history of, you know, kind of sandbagging a little bit when he uh, doesn't feel like going to school or wants to get out of going to football practice and, you know, his stomach hurts or his allergies are acting up or his... His leg hurts. You know, <laughs> we had a bit of a, a history of that, so it's a little bit of the boy cries wolf sometimes. And there was a week uh, last year where, you know, his stomach wasn't, you know, you know, wasn't feeling so great, and he was just really tired and wasn't waking up in the morning. And I was like, here we go. You know, he's just <laughs> he's trying to get out of going to school or getting out of football practice. And several days of this go by, and I'm like, maybe, God, maybe he really is not feeling so well. <laughs> I took him to the doctor, and they're like, you need to get him to the ER right oh, now. Oh, boy. <laughs> His appendix had burst. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> In fact, I felt so bad. Um, but uh, obviously, he had an immediate surgery and was fine, but I, I had to take ownership over that one. <laughs> like, but, but it was also a coaching moment as well. It went both ways. I was like, see, when you, know, when you uh, exaggerate a little bit on your ailments, then uh, sometimes people aren't always going to believe you. <laughs> yeah, that's why stories like the boy who cried wolf last the test of time. But you hit on something there that I've spoken with a lot of dads about, and that is apologizing to our kids. I could never have dreamed of my father saying I'm sorry to me for anything. Uh, but it seems very popular with this generation of fathers. Well, uh, yeah, I agree. My, my father would have never apologized. You know, we would have moved past it and just never talked about it. Um, but something happened, actually, just to you know, kind of be real with you, something happened. Uh, yesterday where we, um, it was Monday, we were at a Labor Day event here in, in Rancho Santa Fe. And, um, I, I, I jokingly usually say that sibling rivalry knows no age boundaries <laughs> because for some reason every now and then, you know, our oldest 12 year old and his four year old sister, they just go at it. They know how to push each other's buttons. And my wife and I are like, Tyler, you're 12. <laughs> She's four. But at the same time, you know, 12-year-olds have feelings, too. It goes both ways. And uh, I was getting on him about uh, pushing his sister's buttons. And uh, I was like, you need to be the older one, take ownership, be more mature. Um, and, you know, if she's pushing your buttons, just brush it off. Just walk the other way. You don't need to respond. <laughs> we'll do the parenting. Um, and I was coming down on him, and I took him aside. I was like, you know, sit down. We need to talk. And he, uh, he got kind of emotional, and he was he was explaining that sometimes when we – uh, come down on him for, um, you know, pushing his sister's buttons. But when she does it to him, you know, in, from his perspective, we don't react in the same manner, I guess, from our perspective because she's four. And, um, you know, we, we do uh, obviously reprimand. But at the same time, he basically explained that he's like, I don't feel like I'm, I have a voice that's being heard. Uh, when I say that, you know, she's doing this or that, you guys brush it off. Say, Tyler, you're 12 and that's it. But when she does it to me, you know, you guys don't do much. 
So it's um, it was an interesting conversation. You know, I take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, but and he's he can be he's he's a, an emotional person. Um, that's just his nature. But at the same time, it was it was interesting um, to see him really be open and honest and, and talk about how he feels sometimes that he doesn't have a voice, even though we're talking about such a huge age gap. So it was something to consider from a parenting perspective. Yeah, it's great to hear you speak on that because I have three boys. And I have that issue myself with my 12-year-old and my 7-year-old. Uh, sometimes it's very brutal, their relationship together. So uh, it's very good to hear you speak on that. And since you do have a 12-year-old, I'm very curious about how you handle tech time with your kids, social media. Uh, is he caught up with the Fortnite craze at all? Don't get me started on Fortnite, my friend. Um, <laughs> I, 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 let's just say I haven't seen my son uh, most of the summer. <laughs> all right. For, if he's not doing his chores or... Uh, walking the dogs or, uh, you know, you know, outside, you know, with his friend, he's playing Fortnite. But the weird – and Fortnite's got to become such a phenomenon. I mean, they did a whole story on it on – it was like Good Morning America, the Today Show yesterday. Um, you see it in TV commercials. I think they've been around a year. They're already valued over a billion dollars. Their revenue model is phenomenal. But also, it's the most highly addictive video game I think that's ever been created. <laughs> but at, at the same time, from a military perspective, it teaches – Teamwork, communication, uh, strategy. <laughs> my, my son, uh, you know, has uh, intimate understanding of most assault weapons now. Um, now, do you get in there and dominate the leaderboards? Are you playing with them? No. <laughs> I don't know how to work those controllers. Yeah, but, but it is kind of funny. My wife and I will be passing through the room, and we find ourselves sitting down and asking questions and, <laughs> and providing advice, and tactical advice. Um, but, but in all seriousness, it, it is a discussion. They're literally... Uh, this was part of the news show yesterday. There are Fortnite support groups for parents. Seriously. Oh, I, be I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> through, through social media. I, I actually did a post on LinkedIn, a picture of Tyler playing Fortnite, and I took a poll. You know, I, it's, I've, you know, I have about 10,000 LinkedIn connections, and I took a poll, and it just went, I don't know if viral is the word, but it's just got so much response and people providing advice and, and feedback and you know, sort of that dichotomy of, of, you know, how, you know, how much do we let them play? How much do you regulate it? Um, but I will say when, when you have a child who's so passionate about something, it also is a great tool uh, for, um, for discipline because you just take it away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. I'm sure one of the most popular sentences this summer amongst parents was clean your room or no Fortnite. <laughs> okay. You're crushing it as an entrepreneur. I know you're into digital marketing, real estate and more. Uh, were you always into that sort of stuff or when did that entrepreneurial bug give you the bite? I, uh, I, uh, graduated, I did undergrad at SMU in Dallas, uh, double majored in finance and economics. And then I took a job as a financial analyst with a large commercial real estate investment firm. Um, my dad had been in the business for many years. That's not necessarily why I did it, but it was a great networking path to getting my first job out of college. I knew, you know, having been a finance, you know, by education person, uh, it was a good path to, to landing that first job out of college. Um, and then one of my I'll shorten the story, but one of my fraternity brothers actually talked me into the idea of quitting my job, joining the Navy, and trying out for the SEAL program. <laughs> so after after much dialogue and some training, I eventually decided to to leave that job, and I knew that business would be there when I when I was done with that you know, part of my life. And uh, so when I got out, I figured I would you know get my MBA, and you know and it was it, you know the real estate market was just 
booming all over the country and the world, and I figured, well, why not use a little bit of that momentum that I already have, uh, go to grad school, and you know, possibly get into that side of the business again. Uh, met my previous business partner in grad school and um, started. It was more of, the companies have been mostly technology focused. The first one was a basically like an early version of Trulia or Zillow, it was a home finding search engine. Because uh, we were riding that that real estate bubble all the way to the top, wow. <laughs> we were like, "This ride's never going to end." <laughs> and then the global economy imploded. Um, and then we learned so much about digital marketing, media, and analytics just by running that business. Uh, we decided to start a an agency, a digital marketing and, and media and analytics agency, um, where uh, to diversify ourselves a little bit, obviously, uh, to where we could have clients that were not tied to such. Uh, cyclical uh, industries, and that you know we raised some more money for that business, and it doubled in size every year. Um, sold that off about two years ago. Um, so I, w- I wouldn't necessarily say I was always passionate about those specific uh, industries per se, but you know a lot of times entrepreneurship is about finding a white space, finding an opportunity, and going all in. Uh, I- I'm more passionate about building teams, building organizations. Um, creating great cultures, great places to work, uh, you know, leading people, um, not necessarily about the specific industries that I've been in previously. Now, that being said, uh, I've been, you know, about six years ago, I started writing and speaking a lot more and studying more around leadership, culture transformation, improving engagement and productivity in the workplace and applying a lot of the, you know, a lot of the cultural and foundational principles uh, that build high-performance teams in the special operations community and how we can learn from that and apply those principles and disciplines into building better organizations designed to achieve, you know, great financial returns uh, in the civilian work sector. Um, So doing a lot of speaking about that, I speak usually about 60 to 75 times a year all over the world, uh, write for Forbes and for Ains on these topics. Um, My best-selling book came out. Uh, this past year. Yeah, I was just going to hit you with that. So let's get it in there. Uh, what could you tell my listeners and I about taking point a Navy SEALs 10 fail safe principles for leading through change? It, it's basically a modern 21st century version of some of the other books you've seen out there, like Leading Change and John Cotter. I'm a big fan of him. Um, but a lot of it, it's a, obviously a different angle. It, like I said before, it, it takes and, and some of the pages out of the, the almost constant state of change and transformation that the special operations community has been in in our post-9-11 reality and applies that to the more disruptive, fast-paced world of of modern business and how technological advancements and disruption are forcing organizations to grow faster with fewer resources, to be in a constant state of change and transformation, but most companies and organizational leaders and managers haven't quite uh, been able to keep up <laughs> with the pace of change and learn how to really lead change because it's probably one of the more complex aspects of leadership uh, in any environment, whether you're on the battlefield or in a, a fast-paced, high-growth organization uh, or just trying to remain relevant and competitive in your space. Um, so the book breaks down 10 principles about really uh, aligning culture with strategy, uh, improving accountability and communication and trust, uh, really improving employee engagement because organizational change efforts require the participation of the majority of the workforce, and if they don't, that's why actually about 70% of organizational change strategies fall short of meeting their objectives because there's lack of leadership alignment, there's lack of engagement and participation, uh, and usually there's more significant and hard uh, significant hard and soft costs than people anticipate. So um, it, it's uh, we start experiencing what I call change battle fatigue. 
<laughs> and I've, I've experienced it in my own companies. Uh, I've led uh, successfully and unsuccessfully led major transformations in my own companies and have learned a lot both from not just research but from my own um, experiences in my own companies. And when it was time to sell the business, I, the next path was to write the book, and then the book is also designed to be the foundation of our business transformation consulting practice. So. Awesome. Let me reel it back into fatherhood a bit here. What can you tell me about the differences between you had the boy first and then the girl? What were some of the differences of raising the boy and then adding the girl dynamic? That was a huge change. Girls, <laughs> girls are amazing. Uh, they're so different, though, um, especially when I compare the, the two that are closer in age, Parker Rose and Ryder. And Ryder's just He's pure boy. I mean, he, he'll, and I don't even know where he gets this, but he'll, anything he picks up is a gun. <laughs> I don't care if it's a post-it note, a pencil, or an actual toy gun. He'll, he'll hold get it out up. of town. He'll hold it up to his eye, and he'll move tactically through the room. He'll pie corners. I, don't, I have not taught, taught him any close quarters combat skills, <laughs> but uh, he's just got it in his blood. Um, whereas Parker Rose, you know, walks around the house in multiple different uh, colored outfits, tutus and leggings, and uh, bows in her hair, and she likes ballet and dance and playing with her her stuffed animals. <laughs> so, so it's uh, it's different in, in the most wonderful way possible. Okay, I'll use your little guy playing with toy guns to kind of segue into this next question here. I know they're young yet, but given what you know now about the military, how would you feel about your kids following in your footsteps when the time comes and joining the military? Yeah, as you can imagine, I get that question a lot. And I guess the simplest answer, I, I would have to be cautiously optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I, my parents were, I keep in mind when I decided to you know, leave my finance job and join the Navy, it was pre, just, just pre-9-11. We were about nine months away from 9-11. And so it was a different mindset, kind of a different um, approach to service. Uh, whereas I have so much respect for uh, our young men and women these days joining up now during wartime. Uh, I mentor uh, young men into the SEAL program and have so much respect for them because they know they're going downrange. They know they're going to go to war. I mean, what you do and where we're operating obviously changes at the speed of war. But, you know, we still have conflicts that are growing all over the world. And, you know, these young men and women, you know, know they're serving, you know, for a, for a higher purpose, not just to serve your country, but to defend this great nation. Um, so if, you know, either one of my boys or daughter said they wanted to join, I would, <laughs> I would certainly wouldn't necessarily encourage it, especially at the special operations level. But if they were really passionate about it, then I would be, I would, I would be, give them the utmost support. All right. And just because it's been trending so much here, let me see if I can get your opinion on this. The Nike ad with Kaepernick about sacrifice and all that. Uh, what's your take on the players who are taking a knee during the national anthem? Uh, I don't really, honestly, I haven't I've tried to stay away from that topic, but, um, you know, being a, a, you know, a patriot and whatnot, I, you know, obviously my first inclination is um, to, to think it's just, it's garnering way too much attention. Uh, I think that the amount of attention it's garnered has, has blown it up into what it is now. Um, obviously we have, a, a, you know, a freedom of speech, but at the same time, we also, uh, in my opinion, need to, you know, respect the flag, respect where we come from, respect our history. Um, and it just depends really on understanding, you know, what is the real motivation, you know, behind this? Is it to get attention? Is it to get a Nike deal? <laughs> is it because you really, really, truly believe in, in that cause? Uh, is it a combination thereof? 
Um, without understanding that, it's kind of hard to, you know, to, to put a finger on it. I think some people who are part of that type of movement really do passionately believe in it and, and hope to make a difference, and I think the rest are followers. All right, what do you got coming up that we can look forward to here? I know that you do a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, I understand you'll be at the Conclave of Warriors in December. I've had the honor of interviewing uh, fellow teammates Jason Redman and Ray Kerr, amongst others that will be speaking there. Uh, but what do you have coming up on the horizon here? Where can we find you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got uh, next week I'm in Nashville, um, a company putting on an event. They're called True North, uh, but they're a big uh, uh, trucking insurance company. Uh, so one of their big annual events on the keynote for Nashville. Um, got a, a week at home after that, and then once I get into October, it's the, the speeding freight train. <laughs> I'm in, you know, I don't even remember all the cities I'm going to be in, but uh, I have about 15 events in October, so it's going be, gonna be, gonna to be wild. Okay. Uh, last thing I want to hit you with here, I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice could you give to the new father or to the about-to-be dad that's out there listening? Uh, just take it one day at a time. Uh, remember that, uh, it, you know, it's not easy, and uh, you just got to, you know, keep that uh, positive mental attitude. Um, but it's just remembering that even when the times get hard, I was, a, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but I was a full-time single dad for three years. Uh, before I met my, you know, my wife, and we have two more kids with, um, and it was hard. Uh, it was very, very difficult. But looking back, I wouldn't trade those those uh, moments for anything in the world. So when you're feeling exhausted, you're feeling frustrated, just remember that this is a gift from God, and it's going to be the best thing that's ever happened to you. All right, that's going to wrap it up, Brent Gleason. I want to say thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time right here on First Class Fatherhood. Really appreciate you bringing on, uh, bringing me on the show, and. Uh, uh, based on the names you've said, uh, in great company so far, and uh, appreciate everything you're doing, and uh, maybe we'll, hopefully we'll do it again someday. You bet. We'll be right back after a quick spot. Operation 300. Operation 300 is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization which hosts adventure camps for children who have lost their fathers as a result of military service. Pairing each child with a father-aged male mentor who spends the weekend doing things with the children they might have done with their dad. Their mission is to provide mentorship to the children of the fallen, honor the sacrifice of those who have given their all for our freedom, and promote patriotism and service in our communities. Please visit them today by going to Operation300.com. Welcome back to First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now is a First Class Father... He is a former All-Pac-10 wide receiver who played ball at the University of Arizona. He is a former undercover special agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. He is a New York Times best-selling author of No Angel, My Harrowing Undercover Journey into the Inner Circle of the Hells Angels. It is my honor to say, Jay Dobbins, welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you for having me, and welcome to your audience. All right, Jay, let's start it here. How many kids do you have, and how old are they? I have two. I have a 27-year-old daughter and a 23-year-old son. All right, one and one. What type of sports or activities were they into? Oh, my goodness, everything you can imagine. Every type of physical activity from soccer to swimming to t-ball to baseball to football to softball, volleyball, golf, uh, you name it. Uh, we have a very sports-driven family, and I encourage my kids to try everything. Um, whether they were successful or not, whether they were good at it or not, uh, to get out there and participate and be willing to try was important. 
That's awesome. All right, I know you're currently coaching high school football, but did you have the opportunity to coach the kids when they were playing ball? I did. I coached uh, both my kids as youngsters in youth programs. I coached my son uh, in high school as a football player, and then after he left uh, high school, he continued to he got a scholarship and continued to play football in college. But I continued coaching at the high school that he attended after he left. Cool. All right, Jay, you are the author of an awesome book, No Angel, My Harrowing Undercover Journey to the Inner Circle of the Hell's Angels. The book is a phenomenal read, and for me it was kind of like Donnie Brasco meets Sons of Anarchy. I am putting a link in the description of this podcast episode, so you guys that are listening, just tap the link, man. It'll bring you right to where you can buy the book. I highly recommend it. But, Jay, for those listening who are a little unfamiliar with your story, please hit us with a little bit about your background and how you ended up infiltrating the Hell's Angels motorcycle gang. Well, I was a federal agent. I was an ATF agent for 27 years. Um, over the course of that time, almost all my experience and all my activity was in undercover work. Uh, over the course of my career, I participated in uh, over 500 undercover operations, one of which was uh, the infiltration of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang, uh, which was primarily based in Arizona, but which went all over the country with operations. Wow, okay, yeah, as a single guy, I can kind of understand the philosophy of, hey, if something happens to me, so be it. But as a family man, as a father, there's so much more at stake. There's so much more to lose. So how did you handle the fear of, one, something happening to you and now your family having to move on without you, or two, being uncovered and your family now becoming the target of a retaliation? Well, that's a good question. And those fears uh, for my family became reality. Uh, after the Hells Angels case uh, concluded and my undercover operations were done, my true identity was revealed, and uh, the death and violence threats came. And those threats uh, went well beyond me. Uh, there was threats uh, to uh, videotape the gang rape of my wife. There were death threats on my kids. There were threats to locate my uh, daughter, who was a teenager at the time, and torture her. There were threats. Uh, I, I had uh, Hell's Angels uh, threatening to say, hey, we know where your kids go to school. Uh, we know you love that little boy. When he gets off the, when you're waiting for him to get off a school bus someday and he doesn't get off, you think about who's got him and what we're doing to him. Uh, in 2008, my house was burned to the ground in a failed assassination attempt. My family was inside the house at the time the, the arsonists hit it. Uh, they barely escaped. They escaped with smoke inhalation injuries and, and were lucky to get out of the house. Uh, actually, my son, who was 10 years old at the time, discovered the fire. Um, everybody was asleep. Um, he was awoken by the windows shattering from the fire. The house was, was consumed with flames at 3 o'clock in the morning. He rescued his mother and his daughter from the fire. The, the arson investigators said, if your son doesn't wake up, your family dies in that fire. So those fears that you described uh, and, and what my professional life brought into my personal life and brought onto my family uh, became reality. Incredible. Wow. Uh, now, have your kids been resentful to you, towards you, because of uh, all the work that you've done, everything you've been involved in, and because it has greatly affected their lives? Well... I think that's natural. I, I think that my kids, due to the life I lived, uh, 
were uh, forced to deal with situations and events that no person should ever have to deal with, uh, especially a child, especially a kid, uh, let alone any adults. So are they resentful towards me? I, I, I'll say this. I've made a million mistakes in my life. I've made a million mistakes with my family and with my kids, and they've given me a million and one second chances. Well said, Jay. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating to me about a biker gang like the Hells Angels is that they do do a lot of charity type work. They raise money for kids all the times. And then I hear about these stories of uh, murder and mayhem. So it's really a, a conflict of appearance. Are they more of a motorcycle club or are they a gang? Well, you know, they have an excellent propaganda machine and they're very good at putting a, a public face or a public image forward of that they're just these, uh, fun-loving rascals who have a brotherhood of liking to ride motorcycles together, but they're really good guys. Um, when they do that, they want us as society to ignore uh, murder and rape and extortion and human trafficking and gun running and, and drug trafficking and um, all types of violent crime that are um, accepted within what they call their club, I call their gang. Um, clubs typically do not reserve and hold positions and places of honor for their members who are convicted of violent, vile, despicable crimes. The Hells Angels do. They're a gang. Okay, so it's basically a front for what's going on behind the scenes. Well, and they're so effective at it, too. They're really good at convincing uh, the public that they're harmless and that they're misunderstood. Um, and I will say this, is every, is every uh, person that wears a Hells Angels vest a murderer or a rapist? No, they're not. Um, but there are those types of people within the gang who are giving, get given elevated status and elevated respect uh, because of the crimes they committed. And, and they warmly hold a place for those guys when they're convicted, um, after they're incarcerated, when they come out, and there's a placeholder there waiting for them. They're honored. Wow, okay, so more like a mafia-type uh, street credit operation. They're, the, they're, the, they're mafia on motorcycles is what they are. Okay, Jay, so tell me, from what you've seen, your experience, what are the members of the Hells Angels like as parents to their children? Do they bring them up to become members of the club, or do they keep them separate from the whole organization itself? Uh, both. I think from my personal observation, um, I saw, to be honest with you, I saw some great parenting. I saw some loving, loyal parenting uh, from, from gang members. I also saw some despicable parenting. Um, I don't know that they, uh, as, as far as how they handle their children, are any different really than, than the big picture of society. You have good parents and you have bad parents. You have people that uh, try to promote their kids and advance their kids, and you have people that disregard their kids. Um, I think that the, the, the model of society and the spectrum that we see there wasn't any different within the Hells Angels gang. Okay, how did your experience inside the Hells Angels and being a witness to all this stuff, how did it change you or affect you as a father? Well, it, um, I'll be honest with you. 
Um, and this is not a flattering statement to make, and, I, and I've listened to uh, many of your guests on your show, and they're really tremendous uh, human beings, tremendous fathers who, um, through all walks of life, somehow managed to raise great kids. Um, this is a humiliating statement to make. Man, I, I failed my family uh, many times. Uh, during my undercover roles, during my undercover cover work, especially during the Hells Angels case. Um, I became so consumed with my role and so uh, entrenched in what I was doing that there was times when I abandoned and ignored and betrayed my own family, betrayed my own kids in exchange for the job I was doing. And I'm not proud of that. It's It's shameful, and I carry the guilt with that. Uh, with those decisions, but um, I don't blame people. I don't. I don't make excuses. Um, anything bad that happened to me, um, I had a hand in it, and I hold myself accountable for it. Yeah, taking ownership of our failures as fathers is important on all levels because we all fail as fathers, and, and time management between career and, and fatherhood is difficult. I've spoken to many high-level athletes, Navy SEALs, and it's a real dichotomy. It's, it's difficult for all of us. So. Uh, please tell me, Jay, because your story does remind me a little bit of the Donnie Brasco film. Is there an element to you that kind of sympathized with the guys you were gathering intel on and looking to bust? Sure. I, I crossed paths with people who I developed an affection for. I developed uh, relationships with people. When you spend, you know, that undercover infiltration was two years. It wasn't uh, every moment of it wasn't in some uh, violent or, or threatening situation. I got to see them as people. I got to see them as human beings. Uh, the, the disappointing part is that when you see people that you uh, grow to like and, um, and enjoy their company with in certain aspects of their life, but then when you see them do something illegal or violent or that's uh, offensive, you look at them like, man, you're better than this. You're, you, I know you. I've seen the other side of you. You're better than this. Well, I really think that's true of all of us. I think we're all children of God, and none of us are perfect. There's good in us. There's bad in us, and I really do believe that. And I think it's more of people conforming to a certain role in society that we're being made to play uh, in our lives because we're trying to belong to something or trying to fit into something. And, we, and some people, they, they stray pretty far off the path. Well, I think, you know, like for me in this, in, in these undercover roles that I played, I, I, I typically played the role of a, of a hitman and a debt collector. That was a, like a little, a, a bit of a universal cover story that I applied into various criminal organizations and, and various suspects. And, you know, like I would come home from these long stints on the road, um, away from home. And I did a poor job of separating that undercover street persona from who should have been the husband and the father. And I would come home and my wife told me on more than one occasion, you can't show up at this house and treat us like we're your suspects. And then in my self-defense, I would say, I'm not a light switch. I can't turn this off and on. People that treat what I do for a living as a hobby, they get dead. I have to be all in. I'm not a light switch. And then her response was, well, when you come to this house, you better install a dimmer switch and turn that down. 
because we are not street thugs. Yeah, I can't even begin to imagine that struggle. I mean, you talk about a change of direction from one extreme to the other, going from the hitman to the family man. I think in contrast to many of the guests you've had who are some very heroic uh, like uh, champions of fatherhood, um, I've, I've tried to be a good father. I've tried to repair uh, some of the battle damage that I created. Um, but, but my story is, is in many ways is a failure story. My story is, is as much about the mistakes I made and the regrets I have and the guilt I carry from those as they are through the achievements. Yeah, well, well, you're a first-class father in my book, Jay, but, I mean, I'm curious, as a father of a daughter now, I know she's a little older now, but back when she was in the dating scene as a teenager, say, how did you deal with that? I kind of picture you as the guy with the shotgun there and, and the pimple-faced prom date is standing there wetting his pants. Uh, how are you with that whole scene? Well, I'll tell you, uh, one of the first experiences she had, she had a kid show up at the house to take her on a date, and um, I pulled him aside. And I was, I mean, I was in my role. I, my appearance and my attitude was pretty aggressive and pretty rough. And I put my arm around this kid's shoulder and I said, for 16 years, it has been my job to take care of her and protect her. For tonight, I'm turning that responsibility over to you. You are now in that role for the, for your, for your adventure tonight. If anything happens to her, that she doesn't approve of, of anything happens to her that's bad, your mother will weep when she sees what I've done to you. Now, <laughs> go have a great night. <laughs> oh, man, that's good stuff. Um, all right, how about you as a disciplinarian, uh, letting letting your kids know what line not to cross? How are you with disciplining the children? Did you spank your kids? How did you go about it? I did. I was um, I was hard on my kids. Um, lovingly hard on them, I believe. I didn't get them, I, I didn't let them get away with a lot. Um, if they ever, uh, even, even to the point where I ever caught them being short or moderately disrespectful to their mother, I tightened them up. I was like, you need to understand who you're talking to when you speak like that. Um, I tried to teach them respect. I tried to teach them dignity. I tried to teach them integrity through all these various uh, teaching moments that come up when you're trying to parent kids. And um, my kids have turned out um, amazingly well. Um, they are uh, my greatest source of pride and my greatest source of achievement. But I'll say this, um, there's not a night that I ever went to bed. There's still not a night that I go to bed where I don't lay my head down on a pillow and think about the things I did wrong um, with my kids in my life, the things that I said that I shouldn't have said, the things that I didn't say that I should have said, the things that I did and didn't do that were wrong. Um, not a night goes by that has ever gone by in my life where I don't close the day and lay my head on the pillow and wish I had done better. Okay, Jay, what kind of advice could you give to the parent whose kid is attracted to the biker gang world or he thinks the lifestyle looks sexy and appealing and he's showing signs of heading down that biker world direction? What would you say to those parents or even those kids? You know, man, that is so hard because the entertainment industry uh, glamorizes that lifestyle. And it, like you said, it makes it sexy. It makes it exciting. Um, 
It, it makes it seem very adventurous. And to certain people, that's appealing. Uh, man, there's a dark side to it, man. It's a hard life. Uh, when, when I started running, uh, with, with the Hells Angels, uh, the guy I was working for, the president of the charter I was in, he said, I can promise you three things. I can promise you death, violence, and prison. That's my sales pitch. Welcome to the game. That's the reality of it. Okay, well, knowing what you know now and how everything played out, would you do this? Would you do it all over again? I would. Um, in hindsight, I would do it better. I would do it cleaner. Um, you know, like, like any of us, we don't have a crystal ball. We react to situations the best we can. Um, but I'll say this. Um, through my career, through my profession, I loved what I was doing. When the alarm clock went off in the morning and I put my feet on the ground, I was excited to go to work. I was excited for what the challenges were. And I've tried to convey that to my kids, to the kids I coach, to the kids I speak to. Whatever it is that you choose to do with your life, be excited about it. Um, don't base your decisions on money. Don't chase the dollar bill. Chase your passion. Chase something that when it is time for you to go to whatever it is, that job you choose, that career you choose, you can't wait to go. You can't wait to get there. Um, it's, a, it's a much more pleasant, happy way to go through life with that attitude than it is looking at what the size of your bank account is. Well said. Yeah. And I'm trying to do that with this podcast here. Um, all right, Jay, what are you up to now? What's driving you? What are you motivated by? What are you working on? What's next for Jay Dobbins? Well, there, you know, there are several things. Um, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, I coach high school football. I coach at South Point Catholic High School in Tucson. And uh, that brings me great joy. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not the best football coach out there. Um, and I love the game. But I love being around the kids and my players more than I love football. Um, I love the interaction with them. I love seeing them grow and achieve. And um, when they fail, I try to be there uh, to help them recover from that. Um, I press my kids. I'm hard on them. I challenge them. Um, and I tell them this all the, all the time. If I don't push you, if I don't challenge you, if I'm not hard on you, I'm cheating you. That is my job. It's not my job to be your friend every day. I want I, I want you to like me. I want to have your respect. But my job is to challenge you because if I don't, I cheat you. Um, and what we learn in sports uh, through life, especially team sports, translates into every other aspect of our world. Ultimately, the people that are great at what they do, um, all of us, you, me, anybody out there, people running families, people running businesses, people coaching teams, um, we're problem solvers. That's, that's the people that are great problem solvers are great at what they do. And you do that through communication and through relationships and through trust. And so, you know, on the first end, um, I try to convey those things to the kids I coach. Um, on a personal level, professional level, um, I speak uh, to law enforcement groups. I speak to corporate groups. And, the, and the, the mantra of that, the message of that, pretty much remains the same. 
it, it doesn't change a whole lot because it applies across the board for every aspect of our life. Yeah, I think sports is one of the few places left where our kids can kind of fail and get that experience of failure and then growth. Uh, but I fear, like many dads here I've been talking about on the podcast, I fear that that's been uh, disappearing in our culture. And I speak on it often that uh, the whole every kid gets a trophy mentality is very damaging. How do you feel about the participation trophy philosophy? Well, personally, for me, um, I've learned more from my failures than I have from my successes. And when you fail and when you make mistakes, then when you win or when you achieve, it means something. It holds some value. Um, you work towards something and you uh, uh, earned that accomplishment versus having it handed to you. Um, I think that that is uh, an element of our current society, of our culture, where we fall short, is that we reward um Mediocrity. We reward uh, something less than our best. And so that uh, trains us as people to expect reward for something less than our best performance. And that, that's, you know, that's, it's just not good for anybody. It's not good for kids or adults. Yeah, I think it's crippling this generation of kids uh, and to not get the ability to earn, uh, but instead they're being rewarded basically, as you said, for not putting out their max effort. So um, it's a little sad. But last thing I want to hit you with here, Jay, is I like to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice could you give to the new father or to that about-to-be dad that's out there listening? I think that um, unconditional love is uh, really important because – um, like any of us, your kids are going to make mistakes. They're going to fail. They're going to do things wrong. Um, that unconditional love to put your arm around them when they blow something up or when they trip is important. But I think also like correcting that. And um, like I said for myself, second chances are hugely important. Everybody deserves a second chance, in, in, like I said earlier in, in our conversation. I've got a million second chances in my life. Um, but I think that we need uh, to do a better job of raising our kids basically to be resilient, to be tough. Um, when I was growing up, um, my dad, my hero, who was a very kind man, um, a very compassionate man, but he was tough. And I remember he, him telling me as a, as a young person, the worst four-letter word anybody can ever call you is soft, S-O-F-T. Never let anybody say you're soft. Always get up. Always find a way to get back on your feet. Always find a way to crawl back up when you get knocked down. And I think that's, I think that's a message that we need to send to our kids because guess what? Life is going to knock you down. Life is going to kick you in the balls, and you got to figure out, like, how to overcome it. And come back from that. And you have to do it over and over and over again for your entire life. Yeah, very well said. Uh, we need that right now as a country. The youth in this country definitely need that message. And it's an important one. Um, all right. Hey, this has been great, Jay. Do you have anything else you want to throw in here before I wrap it up? Just uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I, I've seen your, your lineup of guests. I'm very humbled and flattered. Uh, 
to be included in this group because there's some remarkable, amazing people that you've spoken to. And, um, you know, all we can do every day is just go out and do our best as parents, as people. Um, and you know what? You're going to trip along the way. You're going to make mistakes along the way um, and identify them and try to recover from them. And that's life. Awesome. Great stuff. You were very well spoken. I appreciate you taking the time out to give me a few minutes here on First Class Fatherhood. Thank you and all my best to your audience. Good luck and and raise those babies up to go do amazing things. All right. I'll be right back after a quick spot. Welcome back to First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now is a very special guest who was wounded on the battlefield seven times while serving our nation as a Navy SEAL, including being shot in the face. His injuries required more than 37 surgeries, 1,200 stitches, and 15 skin grafts. His attitude towards recovery has inspired hundreds of thousands of people across the globe. He is a best-selling author, motivational speaker, founder of Wounded Wear, but most importantly, he is a first-class father. Jason Redman, welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Alec, hey, thanks for having me on. An honor. All right, let's kick things off here. How many kids do you have and how old? I have three kids. They are uh, 18, 15, and 13 years old. So older boy and two girls. Okay, well, given your background and everything that you know about it, how would you feel if your kids wanted to follow in your footsteps and, and join the military, join the service? I, You know, I would love it. I'd be perfectly honest. I mean, I would be honored. I, I tell anybody that I think the military is an, is an amazing organization that that teaches you the most vital aspects of life um whether you ever see combat or not and i know for many people out there especially as a parent i mean you would probably hope your kids wouldn't be exposed to that but then you also have to balance that against the reality of the world but even without any of those aspects just for your kids or anyone to go through uh basic military training or any of the advanced trainings. I mean, they, they learn the basic principles of being a good human being. You learn how to be an effective leader. You learn how to be an effective member of a team. You learn how to communicate. You learn how to do uh, build structure and goal set and all these things that make us successful as human beings. So, uh, you know, in that aspect, I would absolutely uh, love it. Now, with my kids, you know, I'll, 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 I'll jump right into my son actually has a uh, – has a small hole in his heart. It doesn't stop him from doing anything, but I, other than the fact it will stop him from going in the military. That being said, uh, you know, I kind of got hit in the face with the bat, not literally, but metaphorically a few years ago. Uh, well, a few more, six years ago, he was 12 years old and we were at an event and somebody asked my son, he was 12 years old then. And he said, uh, they asked him, are you going to become a seal like your dad? And, and without missing a beat, with the candor that only kids have, you know, when they don't really, they don't take time to think about something, they just, you know, the answer that they have in that moment is what they spit out. And my son said, no, I don't think so. He said, Navy SEALs get killed and severely injured. Wow, gee. That was really eye-opening to me because I realized this was the world my kids had grown up in. You know, my son, from the, the time he can remember, grew up in a household that was at war. I mean, you know, my friends were going to war. Uh, you know, he got a little bit older and I started going to war. 
And, you know, we would have functions. You know, I remember having a poker game one night and, you know, a quarter of the people there were missing limbs uh, because of the war. Uh, my son has had friends that were killed, you know, their dads were killed in the war. So my son grew up with the, the very harsh realities of war. Um, I think for many young men and women, even for myself, when I was younger, going in the military, there was a romanticized part of it. You know, the, the heroism, the brotherhood and all that absolutely exists. But the problem is with war, there is an incredibly negative, dark side. And my young, my son, more than any of my kids, grew up as a witness to that. It is very sad to see so many people disconnected to the fact that there are currently service members overseas uh, laying down their life for our freedom. So uh, it, it doesn't go unnoticed by me. The closest thing uh, us civilians have to learning any of those skills that you mentioned, leadership, teamwork, a lot of times is found in sports. Uh, so I'm curious uh, to hear your opinion on this. Uh, how do you feel about your children playing contact sports such as football? I, I, I am, I'm a fan. I grew up, I, I wrestled and I played football. So I do agree there's a balance. We need to figure out at what age do we allow kids to play full contact. You know, there's a lot of studies that are going on right now. Um, the impacts of head injuries. I mean, I remember on my football team, there was a guy, he had had like six concussions and he had to wear like this padded, this thick pad on top of his helmet. And he used to joke about the fact he was like, yeah, the doctor told me if I t- if I get one more concussion, I'm probably going to be brain damaged. And we all thought it was funny back. Yeah. Then. Wow. But, you know, the reality is, you know, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing? to kids? I remember that mentality. I remember that mentality. We grew up the same way, playing football in the street with our friends and stuff. We just kind of never even gave it a second thought. It was almost just like a. And now looking back on it with my own children, I'm thinking about, gee, guys, be careful. You know, I got to worry about the insurance. If you get hurt, something like this, it's like none of those things even seem to exist when we were doing it. Yep. And, and, and I think, you know, we're getting the reality is we're getting bigger and stronger and faster uh, with time. And, and, uh, and I mean, you watch some of these hits, you know, in, you know, in college, even in high school, vicious, I mean, they're, they're pretty vicious hits. So, so I'm all about it. As long as people know the risks, we look at minimizing the risks. It's no different in special operations with missions. I love football. I wanted my son to play football. I'll be perfectly honest. And uh, he, he grew up playing soccer. He was a very good soccer player. And uh, he was like, Dad, I like soccer. So he didn't go down the road of football. But if he had, I would have totally supported it. Yeah, I try to give my kids a little sample of everything and then try to really rally behind whatever it is that they choose. Uh, I want to turn my attention over to the hot topic. I would love to hear your opinion on this. The school shootings uh, becoming more frequent. Uh, How do you feel about officers in the school or gun safety with children? Please weigh in on the topic. You know, once again, in everything, it's got to be a balanced approach. Uh, It definitely is not, you know, you, you have the far left side of the equation and you have the far right side of the equation. I think you really got to look deeper into this problem. Um, I think school shootings are going to continue. And, and I was just reading an article. I'm trying to remember, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who was talking about um, they're only going to get worse. And here's, and here's the problem. Why is Every school shooting we have desensitizes Americans and most specifically our kids that are perpetrating these school shootings and amplify that by, you know, Alec, you remember back when we watched movies growing up 
they, you know, there was violence, but you know, a PG movie, you didn't see anything. Well, today you watch PG movie and it's almost the level of an R movie we watched when we correct. were. Correct. Yeah, correct. And, and you watch these video games. I mean, they're super realistic. I watch these kids playing call of duty or things like that, or even, um, God, what's the one I would never let my kids play? It's like it's like all about gangbanging. Uh, well, I know Grand Theft Auto is a terrible one. Yes, uh, there, there's that's other, the one. And I, I even did a thing on the podcast with that as well. Those games that we played, like the, the Mortal Kombat or whatever the violence was, it was kind of like just a – you never it didn't look serious. It was just kind of like a backdrop to the objective uh, – the object of the game, you know? It, exactly. But I think all of that desensitizes kids to violence. And that's kind of what Malcolm Gladwell talked about. Every time there's another shooting, it's desensitizing them. And so that it's a much bigger problem than the, than the actual topic of guns. Uh, it's really about the mindset of what American society and specifically our younger generation is being subjected to. So the counter to that is how do you approach that at home? You know, I obviously grew up in a, uh, I grew up with guns. I grew up shooting. Uh, I have guns all over my house. My kids, uh, I, I had all of my kids shooting when they were about five years old. So now they've grown a little older. Like my youngest, she really doesn't like shooting. She's my girly girl. Uh, my older daughter likes to shoot. And my son likes to shoot. Um, but the bottom line, they understand that a gun is a tool and it is a very deadly tool. And I think, you know, that is the approach. You know, you have to have a realistic approach to the life out there, you know, the, the reality of life. And I think, you know, uh, them understanding that there is violence. I mean, I will admit, I let my kids play some violent video games. But I also tell them, you know, you, you do understand that there's nothing, you know, there's a big difference when what you watch in TV when, you know, a guy gets shot. And in real life, you know, when I'm when my uniform's covered in blood because my buddy just got part of his chest blown out, you know, it, it's it's much different in life. Um, and so I think that's the key to anything in life. Uh, as a as a parent, it's about communication and trying to make sure they understand that what they're being exposed to, um, how that plays out in the real world. Because ultimately, right, our job as a parent is to prepare our kids to be successful in the real world. Yeah, I'm down with that philosophy 100%. Uh, I have to admit now, when we're talking about internet issues and the safeties of the internet, my biggest concern, my biggest fear is uh, with pornography and that the fact, because my kids are right at that age there, they're a preteen. Uh, I, I am so worried that they're going to hit the wrong button on the phone or on the screen and they're going to get this real extreme image, a sexually explicit image or sexual act being performed and it's going to really blow their mind when, it, when they haven't even seen a naked woman yet. So I would love to ask you, how do you or how did you curb or monitor the dangers of the Internet, such as pornography? Well, <laughs> so, I mean, I've had two instances with our kids with, you know, pornography. Uh, our son was the first one. He, he was probably 12 and he was hanging out with a kid that was older. And, uh, yeah, we found stuff on the computer and had to approach him about it. So that, of course, led to a talk about pornography and sex and everything else um uh, amazingly you know that one although i kind of expected you know 12 Correct. year old boy um we we had an issue with my my youngest daughter when she was probably only 11 and um 
you know, on her iPad. Like I, I was updating her iPad or something. And yeah, I came across this search thread of, and it was innocent enough in the beginning, but what happened is that's the problem. You know, if you type in butts, just being funny as a young kid, correct? it, it opens up this aperture to God knows, you know, all kinds of things. So that led us to to sit down with her and just say, you know, when people are older, they do these things, but I turned hers off. And we also, and let me go back to my son, we restricted the content uh, that they could get to. So we installed some of this parent monitoring software and basically, you know, uh, um, uh, pornography based websites, it basically could block them if they tried to go to them. So, uh, you know, and I'll be honest, my kids are older now. I'm not putting those things in place. Um, because in some ways I just try and talk to them about the reality of life. Um, Cause ultimately this comes back to everything that I speak on, you know, ultimately you have to have the ability to lead yourself, even though kids, I'm not like this hands off, like, Hey, fend for yourself with my kids. But at the same time, like um, at the, you have to, um, you've got to let your kids fail. And then step in and help where you can, because ultimately they're going to have to get out and succeed in society and they're going to fail in society. And we're running to a problem in society where kids don't know how to fail. They're not functioning well in the real world because the parents protect them and don't expose them to anything. Uh, like even, even to the level of germs right now, we're such a germophobic society. I was just reading an article the other day that there is a cancer that kids are coming down with that is directly attributed to the fact that kids are so clean now. Parents are so germophobic, you know, wiping them down with, you know, alcohol and, you know, Lysol wipes and all this stuff that they're not building specific immunities uh, that they grew up with in the past because, you know, <laughs> you drop something, oh, you know, five second rule, you know, rub a little dirt in it. Yeah, some of the things today that I read and see about parenting, they really bother me. Not, not only has the terminology gotten soft, like you can't even let the kids hang out with their friends anymore. They got to have a play date. Uh, but, but that whole everyone gets a trophy mentality has really gotten everybody sick. I mean, judging by my listenership, there's a lot of dads out there that are just sick and tired of it and really want things to change. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And we have to because we, we are creating uh, the next generation of Americans who are not going to be able to function in the real world because in the real world, there are setbacks, there are problems, there are failures, there is competition. And guess what? The people are better are the ones who are going to get the job before you do. You know, there are going to be people that say things that's offensive to you. There are going to be people that do things that are offensive to you. And guess what? It's just kind of part of life. You may not like it, but it's just part of life. It seems like the only person people want to listen to today is the person that's telling them, hey, it's not your fault. There's something or someone else to blame here. And really, that's one of the reasons why I love the SEAL community, because of that never give up attitude, of course, like you showed during recovery, but also because of like Jocko Willink's theory or, or, or his expression of, hey, take extreme ownership for your life. Yeah, no, Jocko, I was listening to one of his podcasts the other day. I like listening to what everybody has. And Jocko had a great, uh, I love what he was talking about, the difference between um, reason and an excuse. And Jocko's definition, which I thought was great, is, you know, when something goes wrong, 
a reason, if you, if there's a reason why you didn't accomplish what was happening, your reason is you had no, there was no way you could impact the um, circumstances that forced you not to accomplish what was going to happen. So no amount of planning, no amount of preparation, you know, it was a third order external factor that led to your failure. An excuse is something that your lack of preparation, you could have impacted it if you had been better prepared. And I think that's what, you know, kids need to understand. Right, that's the whole hey, turnaround that, of, of thinking, right. Yeah, because guess what? There's a lot of things in life that you can actually impact. You know, a lot of the excuses that people give, you know, oh, it's not my fault or it's his fault or it's their fault or it's whatever's fault. By better planning, by better preparing, by looking ahead a little bit more um, preparation, you could have prevented that. You could have foreseen that that possibly was going to happen. Uh, and a lot of, I mean, hell, a lot of adults don't want to hear that because, yeah, now, you know, that impacts your ego and you're like, oh, you know, don't tell me that I'm not ready. Okay, we're airing this on Memorial Day, which is the day that we honor and remember our fallen men and women. Oftentimes when a soldier is killed or sacrifices their life, uh, they are a father as well as a son. Uh, so what do you say to those dads out there today who have lost their child while protecting our freedom? You know, I've never seen a deeper impact. I, I talk a lot about um, life's ambushes, and I talk about so many people get upset over things that is nothing. It's merely a schedule disruption. That's all it is. And then there are those true catastrophic events, and I've never seen one greater than the loss of a child. It just it disrupts the natural order of things. So for all those parents out there that have lost a, a son or daughter, in the military, I mean, I just say, you know, my heart goes out to you. I mean, I've lost so many brothers. Um, I will say for us, we know the risk that we take and, and we accept it. I, on every mission that I went out, there was a point, you know, I went, I had my little, um, I, I had my little thing that I did before I went out on the mission. And, uh, and the last thing I did, you know, I looked through the pictures of my wife and kids and then, and then I accepted, hey, I may not come back. You know, this may be the last time. And I accepted that I was potentially already dead. Um, and in some ways, you had to think that way. But parents and wives or, or even husbands of female service members out there, they don't, they don't think that way. They don't have the luxury of thinking that way. They're not in that mission. So that impact is just, man, it is catastrophic for them. But I, but I will say this to all those parents that are out there, to all those wives or, or even husbands who have lost a loved one in the military, you know, that there is no greater sacrifice. And that may sound trite, but the problem or not the problem. I mean, the greatness of America, of this nation, there's been no other nation in the history of the world that has grown to the level as fast as we have built around these tenets of freedom and opportunity. And if you go back to the beginning of this nation, it was built on sacrifice, you know, from the average farmer who stood up and said, I, I'm going to become a part of the Continental Army and fight. I don't have the skill set. I believe in freedom, so I'm willing to fight for it. You know, and that moved forward throughout our nation's wars. I mean, there was always some sort of threat against freedom and opportunity that has led, you know, the average person to volunteer and say, I'm willing to go fight. As long as, and we need that because, um, you know, in the immortal words of Travis Mannion, if not me, then who? 
if nobody's willing to volunteer and and fight and sacrifice for what we have here in this nation, then someday it's going to cease to exist. So my opinion, the greatest act of heroism to be able to go out and say, I'm willing to lay down my life, not just for the guys and gals next to me who I'm fighting for, not just for, you know, this nation that I believe in that gave me these opportunities, but everyone who lives in this nation, people who enjoy the freedoms day in and day out, and maybe not even, they, they've never even given a second thought to the military members that are out there fighting, but we do. We know we're fighting for every American. So to the parents that are out there, I just say, God bless you. Uh, I have served alongside your sons and daughters. I witnessed their amazing heroism and, and their willingness every day to step out there knowing they may not come back. And, and obviously for some of them, they didn't. But I, I will do everything in my power to make sure that their memory is never forgotten. Yeah, well said. God bless America. God, and, and thank God for people like you uh, who are out there protecting our freedoms. I do not take my freedom for granted. I understand that you guys are making sacrifices. You men and women are making sacrifices greater than the rest of us. And I make sure that I count my blessings for that each and every day. Uh, I know that Memorial Day usually turns into a big sale at the mall, a day off of work. I know I'll be having a barbecue. How does a former Navy SEAL spend Memorial Day? What are your plans? Well, we also will probably have a barbecue. I mean, I think it's a great time to spend with friends and family because, you know, ultimately that is what makes life better. I will just say that at some point during the day, I will take a moment with my family and my kids and talk about the significance of this day. And I will talk about friends that I've lost and how amazing they were and, and how I miss them. I, I wish I wish they were still here. Uh, guys who, uh, you know, I now still see their kids and their kids are older, but obviously, you know, their dads are no longer around. So those are the things that I would talk to my kids about. Uh, on, on Memorial Day. And I think that's what everybody should do. Even if you have never been in the military, take a few seconds to talk with your family. Have a moment of silence. Just take a few minutes to think about that sacrifice. It doesn't take much, but you know it does go beyond the barbecues. It does go beyond the day off because there was a, a very, very high price that was paid um, to enable that. All right, Jason, you planning on having any more kids, or are we all done here? No, we are done, man. <laughs> yeah, we are done. I, uh, You know, we three was good, and then after I got wounded, I think prior to being wounded, we might have possibly entertained one more, but uh, no, nah, we, we decided to stop at three. All right, your book, The Trident, The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL, was a phenomenal book. I blew right through it. Uh, you have any other upcoming uh, writing projects we can look forward to? I am working on a second book. It'll be hopefully coming out sometime in 2019. We're still kind of uh, working on it and you know negotiating with some of the different publishing houses, but it is called Overcome, and it is a book about leading yourself uh, – it's a business-focused, self-help-focused book, um, talking on many of the principles I've developed, how to be an effective leader, uh, the three rules of leadership, how to lead yourself, and then how to lead others, and then how to lead always. And then it's, uh, you know, talking about how to build a strong, overcome mindset built around change. So, uh, so yeah, those are all the things that I'm working on. It's kind of exciting because 
one of the big things that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in the book is not only the content, but I'm reaching out to other very prominent SEALs who are successful in the business world. And at the end of each chapter, I'm going to have one of these individuals weigh in on how that specific topic, because everything I write about, I learned over that 21 year military career and uh, specifically from my special operations background. So I'm going to have them weigh in on how that specific topic shaped them and led to their success in the civilian world. So I've already got several pretty high profile SEALs who have agreed to be interviewed for the book. And uh, I'm continuing to reach out and work on that. All right. You got to keep me posted on that, Jason. I will definitely be on the pre-order list when that book drops. Uh, Do you have any kind of uh, public speaking events or any appearances coming up? No, I'll just say, uh, you know, a lot of people always ask me, hey, when are you going to do a public event? I always do a lot of private events. Companies hire me to come in. Um, I do have a public event that's coming up. Um, I can't put out the details yet. I will just say that it will be down in Miami in, um, in December. And it's going to be a pretty cool event. There's going to be some prominent individuals. And it is going to be all about uh, being an effective leader, being a, a, an effective man, having that balance as a man, as both a leader. You know, we need more real men in this world, you know, guys who, but balanced. You know, I think a lot of people have this idea, these, you know, this Neanderthal, um, you know, warrior who just sits around, you know, sharpening his white, his knife and, uh, right. you know, in a dark room. But if you look specifically, I'm a big fan of the samurai and the Bushido uh, mindset of having balance in all aspects of their lives. So not only were they great warriors, you know, they were great fathers. They were great husbands. They were great neighbors. They were great at right. real things. And it was all about balance. And, that's something we're going to be talking about. You're going to have a bunch of different speakers, even myself, speaking on different aspects of, of leadership as a man. So that's going to be coming in early December and probably next week we're going to be putting out the information on that and people can buy a ticket and they can come to that event. All right, Jason, that's going to wrap things up here. I cannot begin to explain how thankful I am for your service and the sacrifices that you and your friends have made for me and my family and all of us here in the United States. I want to say thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your day to spend it here with me on First Class Fatherhood. All right, we're going to be right back after a quick spot. Alec, my honor. So, and hey, for all you fathers out there... (laughs) The adversity is going to come, so lead always and overcome all. All right, we're going to be right back after a quick spot. Seat Geek. Taking your kids to the ball game is one of the greatest experiences in all of fatherhood. And now, First Class Fatherhood has partnered with Seat Geek, and you could save $20 off your next ticket purchase by using the promo code First Class. That's one word, First Class. Maybe you want to go to a Broadway show, a concert. SeatGeek has the best prices for a wide variety of events. It's a slam dunk deal, dads. Get over to www.seatgeek.com and use the promo code First Class to get $20 off your next ticket purchase. SeatGeek.com. Welcome back to First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now is a First Class Father. He is the founder of Virtual Training. He is an entrepreneur, an influencer, sales expert, mentor, best-selling author, and he is the host of Dropping Bombs, an awesome podcast. He has a powerful presence on social media. It is a great pleasure for me to say, Brad Lee, welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 
All right, let's do this. How many kids do you have and how old are they? Well, I have six kids. One is 32, one is 30, one is 24, and one is 21, and one is five, and one is three. Wow, okay, a half a dozen. I got four kids myself, so you got me there. Uh, are you all done, or is six the magic number for you? I think I'm done, but you never know. I mean, it happens. <laughs> all right, how about grandkids? Any grandkids on the way or in the stable yet? No grandkids, thankfully. They're not authorized. <laughs> all right. Uh, what kind of sports or activities were the kids into? Well, again, the 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 ones that are full blown adults, they're into you know their careers, and the younger ones are just now getting into it, and they're just uh, just getting into dance. Not really any not really any athletics yet. All right. Now, did you ever have the opportunity to coach any of the kids, or did you kind of cheer them on from the sidelines? Cheered them on the sideline. Um, one of them was in football. The other one was kind of into skateboarding, so not really a sport. And the other two I didn't get a chance to, which is, which is again, ironic because not many people get a chance to be a father multiple times. My first two were from, you know, high school, like 17-year-old type, you know, opportunities to be parents. So I got a lot of lessons learned the hard way with those two. Then the next two was with my first wife, and I got a lot of lessons with those two. And then now my er, my latest two is with my other wife, my new wife, as of the last 10 years. And so now I believe I'm a first-class father. Prior to those, I was a first-class dumbass. Okay, awesome. All right, Brad, please take a moment here to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what it is that you do. Well, I'm the CEO and founder of a, of a technology company that helps people train and educate their either employees or fans or prospects. So we've got a learning technology that we've developed over the last 20 years, and now we kind of private label and license that technology out to companies, Fortune 500 companies, small companies, and subject matter experts such as, you know, Damon John, World Series of Poker, Top Chef. Grant Cardone, um, and the list goes on. And that's what I do. I'm also a speaker, entrepreneur, angel investor, and I have a podcast um, that's getting pretty popular. So I'm a host of a podcast as well, but that's about it. Okay, well, right now I feel like it is one of the best times in history to become an entrepreneur, and, and the idea of becoming your own boss is extremely appealing to all of us, but especially for the young people out there who are just starting out. Uh, what what are some of the biggest mistakes or misconceptions that most young people have about becoming an entrepreneur? I think the biggest mistakes that, that that they that they encounter is just not thinking big enough. I mean, most people underestimate how long it will take. They underestimate how much it will take, how much work it is, and they ultimately don't think big enough. Like their goals aren't big enough. Awesome. I love that. There seems to be some real magic in thinking big. But Brad, what advice do you have for the working dad out there listening who's kind of stuck in a job that he hates and he's afraid of pursuing those big dreams or that big goal that he has because he fears that he's going to let down his family who's depending on him? How does he get started? Well, ultimately, you know, he's got to fear more of staying the same. Like if I were in that position and I was, 
I feared more that I would never be able to provide and be the, 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 the dad I wanted to be and be able to afford the things I wanted to afford for my children. So ultimately I had to take a chance because I feared more of staying the same than I did failing. I mean, worst case scenario, you go get a job. Worst case scenario, you know, things don't happen as quickly and you go back and get the same job you had or a different job just like it. Jobs are a dime a dozen. You know, opportunities are, are, are everywhere. If you feel like you're not in the position you want to be in and you can't be the, you know, the father that you want to be or provider that you want to be and you're stuck in a job, it's an excuse. I have kids to support so I can't afford to take a chance. Well, I would reverse that. I would say I've got kids, so I cannot afford not to. Well said. All right, how about the kids themselves, Brad? I, I know that you're big into personal development. I honestly believe there should be some type of personal development classes in high school or some type of definitely some type of uh, how to accumulate wealth classes for teenagers. But how can we kind of get the kids interested in becoming their own boss and, and providing a service to other people? Well, I think it's you know sometimes difficult when the parent tries to instill inspiration or, or aspirational goals in their kids only because, you know, what they're hearing on YouTube and social media and in schools, their friends, their peers, things of that nature, sometimes we're, we're not looked at as the experts. So a, a, a really great way that I found is to identify those thought leaders and those influencers that you align with and accidentally introduce them to your kids and, you know, kind of hope that they follow in the same footsteps. There's a lot of books out there that are amazing. Matter of fact, I just picked one up by George Chanos, former attorney general of the state of Nevada. He wrote a book called Seize Your Opportunity or Seize Your Destiny. You can pick it up at Amazon, but he, he had a heart attack. He was about ready to die and he wanted to leave his kids um, kind of instructions to make sure that they ended up successful. And it's just, it turned into a book. It's amazing. So sometimes you just, you reach out to other people to do it, believe it or not. Sometimes you cannot get through to a kid, ultimately. I mean, the human brain isn't even fully developed till about 26 years old. The frontal cortex is where they make logical decisions. The amygdala, which is where they get their dreams and excitement. And sometimes when they're there's a chemical reaction that literally clouds the logic part. So when they're excited, stressed, or upset, you, you can't really you can't really get them to understand logic of things. So a good way to do that would be to you know enlist the help of other influencers to where they might listen to you, or I'm sorry, they might listen to your your brother. Have you ever heard the old you know I, I listen to what my uncle says, but not my dad. So sometimes you just reach out and try to find yourself a, 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 a new voice rather than your own. Good stuff. That's some great advice right there. And I will definitely be making a note of that book. Uh, I'm a ferocious reader. And if you're recommending it, I will be reading it. So thank you very much for that right there. But you mentioned social media there. And social media and the Internet are making people a ton of money right now. And there's a lot of good coming from the Internet. Uh, one point in case is that, you know, I drive a lot of Uber as a side hustle. And it's encouraging to see this generation of young adults using ride shares and not drinking and driving nowhere near as much as we did when I was a teenager 
unfortunately. And that's a big plus of the internet. But on the flip side of that, the kids are kind of losing their communication skills with one another because they come into the car and their faces are just glued to the screen. So how do we, how can we kind of handle social media with our kids and help keep it positive and not a negative experience? Well, that's a great question, and I wish I had all the answers. However, you know, you can enroll them in different courses to show them how to leverage social media for the for the power of good. I mean, we've never been in a more connected world, and right now, you know, with the phone in their hand, they've got a TV station, they've got a radio station, and they and they are literally connected to billions of people. So, I would enlist them in some sort of class or course that shows them how to leverage social media to gain exposure and make sure that exposure is a positive one that will go to either generate revenue for them, establish a reputation and a brand, you know, personal brand, or make some sort of positive impact in the world. Okay, very cool. All right, Brad, what are you working on right now? What type of speaking engagements do you have coming up and how can my listeners uh, stay connected with you? Mainly on Instagram, at the real Brad Lee is kind of where I hang out online and, and social media. I've also got all the other ones, same name. I have a couple of speaking engagements coming up, uh, Change Your Life, Change Your Mind, coming up at the end of November. I'll be at the Conclave of Warriors in December, December 1st through the 3rd in Miami, Florida, which is exciting. I've got a couple of um, events in March of next year in Nashville. So it's uh it's going to be somewhat relaxed but you know, I'm excited about all of them. Okay, Brad, last thing I'm going to hit you with here. I'd love to ask all the dads that I have on the podcast, what type of advice could you give to the new dad or to that about to be father who's out there listening? I would say that listen, spend spend as much time as you can right now when they're young. You know, I made the mistake in the beginning to think, you know, hey, I need to go out and, and work and, and make sure that when they're old enough to need a car and need college, I'll be able to afford it. So I kind of sacrificed their their formative years. And if I could do it all over again, I mean, there's no such thing as balance. However, there is priority. And if you don't make your kids a priority, you're going to end up regretting it. Your kids should be a priority, your responsibility and your obligation to make sure that they, uh, you know, find the the success that they deserve, and more importantly, that the world deserves. Well said. All right, Brad. Do you have anything else you want to throw in there before I wrap this up? No, man. I mean, listen. You, you know, sometimes you just have to make sure that you understand that time's the only thing you can't get back. Kids grow up fast. Um, they're listening to you and watching you, whether you think they are or not. And to set a good example, don't don't try to don't try to tell them what to do. Show them what to do. Excellent. Great stuff. Brad Lee, I cannot say thank you enough for giving me a few minutes of your time right here on First Class Fatherhood. My pleasure. All right. I'll be right back after a quick spot. Back to wrap things up here on First Class Fatherhood. I have to give a special thank you once again to the Navy SEALs, Jason Redmond, Ray Kerr, Brent Gleason. Uh, also entrepreneurs, Bedros Koulian and Brad Lee, ATF agent Jay Dobbins, and the event organizer of the Conclave of Warriors, Rafa Conde. 
Please hit me up on Twitter. Drop me a DM over on Instagram. Let me know what you thought about this special collection of interviews. Uh, If you are attending the Conclave of Warriors, I hope to see you there. Please hit me with a DM or an email. Hit me up on Twitter. Let me know. We can get together. Uh, That's all I have for you guys here. I hope you enjoyed the special. I'm Alec Lace. You've been listening to First Class Fatherhood. And please remember, guys, we are not babysitters. We are fathers. And we're not just fathers. We are first class fathers. Thank you.